Hello. Hey. Hi. This is not how we start a podcast, really. <laughs> it's not how we do it, but uh, there's special circumstances. Because we were talking about military advertising. Uh-huh. We were. And, uh, and and I was talking about how I keep getting the same podcast ad for the Navy. By the way, show by genre listeners. We don't do dynamic ad insertion. I control everything. Well, actually, Jordo controls everything that you hear on these episodes. And I promise you, mm-hmm. I will never insert the ad for the U.S. Navy that I hear 400 times a week. If you've heard that ad, then that's the Navy. The Navy hacked in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, I was going to say, it's it's Jordo. You're, you're oh. actually joining Jordo's personal Navy. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful. It needs to say, if you're... I don't, I, you know, you're a free, presumably you're a free person. You can do whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I would not join Jordo's Navy. <laughs> you got to wear like a big inflatable frog costume. Right. Yep. <laughs> that sounds kind of fun. It's a little demeaning, but if you're <laughs> into that, then it's probably okay. The as far as navies go, frog costume seems all right. Yeah. Oh, no, it's all thematic. Yeah. That's okay. not the issue. <laughs> but you were sharing with us, Austin, where, where did this come from? Where did the, well, this came from uh, history, the Marines. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you were talking about this ad from that you're getting on podcasts, which is the Navy recruitment ad. It's, it's more than just boats. Um, It's more than just boats. It's all kinds of stuff. It's all kinds of stuff. And uh, we got talking about, I guess, military advertisement. And I was like, did y'all get those uh, Marines ads when you were kids? And you're like, well, not when we were kids. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, you were saying you had a different type. And I was like, wait, 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 you've not seen this one? And then I had to dig up the night ad, uh, the chess Marines ad, which started in 1987, it looks like, uh, and, and aired for years. And it's like some of my earliest memories are seeing this or other similar typed ads. Uh, uh, there was an entire run of these in the 80s and 90s. So I think the one I actually showed you might be 90s because there's also this other one that's 80s where like, the night appears to become. Oh my to, god! Like this is the oh way they were recruiting people in the late eighties. I 90s. have no. seen these. Yeah. Uh huh. I've woken up a memory. It, it was not until the very end where uh-huh. I got to see the evil guy's face and then the good marine's face uh-huh. that I recognized. And the, the sword ad. transforming. Oh, yeah. So yeah. can you describe what this advertise first advertisement is? The the, the first. Uh, one yeah, it's hellaciously stupid. <laughs> there is a. It's a chess board, and there's wizards and knights and peons and pawns. This sounds sick to me. I don't know. And they... It looks like an FMV game. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this has got more... This has got at least as much money in it as as your average FMV game. (laughs) Hey, hold on. Mm Mm-hmm. Breaking off in the middle of the description to say, have you played the newest version of Myst? Mm Mm-mm. You know, you know, uh, Rand uh, Miller playing uh, Atreus, you know, Atreus, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, my son, Cirrus and Akinah, all that stuff, you know, you know, and that's all uh, FMV game stuff. Yeah. Uh They made his ass into a 3D puppet. No. No. Yeah. He's not a him. He's not a guy anymore. He's like a bad 3D model. Mm. But not an actual puppet. Not like a 3D. No. Not like um, like a crank anchor. (laughs) 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 Cirrus and Akinah. One of those. Yeah, it's know. weird that anyway, Comedy Central right. Mist Show didn't really stick around. Yeah, I think it's a huge disappointment. I kept pitching for that and they wouldn't accept it. <laughs> I was also 11 years old, so that didn't work. Anyway, all right, speaking of being 11 years old, so yes. back to this ad. Yes. 
chessboard, big life-size chessboard, all these different entities on it. And I didn't listen to the sound, so I can't really tell you plot-wise what's occurring, but they're all whipping each other's ass, Mm -hmm. right? Back and forth, bing, bang, boom. Good guys, bad guys, sort of. And at the end, some uh, major figure, I don't know, the the Lord of Hell? Mm -hmm. I don't know what he is. Yeah, the famous chess piece, the Lord of Hell. Hell. He is forced, forced to bow. The Black King, forced to bow. He said, White Knight, who has just defeated everyone, turns into White mm-hmm. Marine Corps member. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, AdFreak18, for posting this to YouTube. Named one of the 25 most epic ads of all time by AdFreak. It might be the number one most epic ad I've ever <laughs> seen. I don't, I don't know if that's a crowded category for me. Well, um, the thing but, that I, yeah. whenever I saw this as a kid... I would be so hyped. And at the end, the, the you know, the long sword that this knight has would turn mm-hmm. into the cavalry saber of the Marines. Yeah. The thing I never really understood, because you don't ride horses on the sea. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'd be upset. Well, the Marines are like the, they're like the ground excursion force. I get it. You I know. know. They're not the Navy, but like. They're not. Well, the Navy's not just boats. Right. It's true. But I'd be upset that it wasn't a video game ad. All of this range yeah. of U.S. Marine oh, yeah. Corps ads as a kid, when I was like 5 to 13, I'd be like, yo, what's this thing that's going on with this guy jumping down fighting a demon or whatever? Because there's also like the lava demon ones. There's like, this mm-hmm. is like a, they, they just did a run of weird fantasy ads, you know? Um, and every time as a kid, it got me. I was like, oh, there's a new cool fantasy game coming out. And then it, there wasn't. The fantasy game was uh, joining the Marines. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, when you said that, like when I when when we got to the end of the ad just a minute ago, and I had that moment of recognition, that's exactly why. Because right. I remember right. having that exact feeling of, oh, this is I've been hoodwinked. Mm-hmm. It's the U.S. <laughs> Marine Corps. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see some like wild ass isometric perspective of like a thousand little two pixel goblins running around. Exactly. Or that's what a I was movie looking for coming to. this fall. Uh, the chess wars are coming. You don't want to see that movie. <laughs> I never kid. Me no, lining up don't. to watch the fucking In Search of Bobby Fisher. Yeah, I did. The thing I wanted most <laughs> of all was something that captured my my love of chess and also mm. weird laser swords. You were a fish head, you might say. No, no, I oh. no, I just liked playing chess in school and like. So not into champions yeah. or anything. I well, Dave Matthews was different, okay. different than fish. Better that drummer though. Right. Uh huh. Anyway, these ads. Uh, what do you think Severian would think about these ads? Well, so that's actually why I uh, didn't. You know why? Why we just went into this episode? <laughs> yeah. Is uh, this is the hangover from the the fantasy eighties? Yeah. Like this yes. is the culture yes. that makes the Book of the New Sun culturally legible. Right. Right. As like not a weird thing that's an outlier or whatever. Uh, as being just like straight up another thing that's happening in the 80s that produces a, a world in which post, you know, satanic panic America, that the U.S. Marine Corps can make their like fantasy D&D looking ass ad. Right. Mm-hmm. We've all seen uh, fantasy David Bowie by now. We've all, you know, we've all seen the the, the 80s has had its, its uh, we've all seen Willow by now. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, Willow is out, etc., etc., and 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 the novel, the fantasy novel, has become a staple. Yep, and not an outlier. Yeah, Mm -hmm. 
And also, you know, I think we just want to talk about the thing. All right, I will actually do the intro here if I can find the tab that has all the information. I'm looking for it now. There we go. <clears throat> Would you say that an advertisement like this exists above or below the will? Would <laughs> I, I think it's uh, standing behind yeah. the will, so it appears to reason as if uh, there are two hands on either side. I see. Mm-hmm. Now yeah, I think all advertisements, you, you you know, you imagine it is the will, but, it, you know, it might be advertisement. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> um, oh, wait, you know what? What chapters? I forgot to update this one. 13. 13. Mm-hmm. Through 24. 13. Is what I read. 24. I think that's right. Also what I read. Whew. Did you read it, dear listener? If not, go read it now. <laughs> pause the podcast. Pause, pause, yeah, pause the podcast. You got a little taste. You know what I mean? You got your little piece here. In the now heat. go back and do the work, and you can have your whole sandwich. Mm. You can have the rest of the bag of chips. You can't eat just one. <clears throat> we are what advertising brains today. <laughs> what was that? What, what, what is that? I've been sick. Okay? In case people can't tell, and I am... Uh, 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 frazzled. Mm-hmm. I'm obliterated by, uh, you know, a curse beyond time. But uh, what's you can't eat just one? What is That's that? That's Lay's potato chips, <laughs> not oh. which is from this starts in 1967. Bet you can't eat just one. So that's been around for a long time. And that's when they gave you a five-gallon bucket of chips for, like, 16 cents. Right, and the world was truly different then. Um, uh, But it's not once you pop, you just can't stop, which feels litigiously close inside of the realm of potato chips. That's true. That's a Pringle. That's a Pringle. What's the bugle? Bugle What is it? What is it? Or what is its slogan? Oh, that's a good point. What is its slogan? (laughs) (laughs) What is the bugle? (laughs) What is the bugle slogan? Does toot it on have it? one? Put in your mouth and toot? I don't think it's that. You know, they get put them on your fingers? It could be put them on your fingers. One it, for every finger. That's the bugle. <laughs> oh, it's other snacks are pointless. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Uh, it is so depressing that advertising is such a huge part of our society and our civilization. <sighs> and yet sometimes it gets you something really good. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you know, how many people write advertisements who like a decade earlier are like, I'm getting my English degree or my creative writing. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to mm-hmm. get an MFA. And then yep. it's uh, <laughs> all right, Jim, you got the bugles account. Mm hmm. That's not how it works anymore, but you know. Yeah. I've seen yeah. Mad Men. It's 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 basically that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what else is pointless? Terminus Est. And ah! uh welcome to Shelf by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season we're reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapters 13 through 24 of Sword of the Lictor. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I'm Cameron, and with me on my mountain are Michael and Austin. You know, normally when I do a podcast that has, like, this sort of rolling, unfocused, like, intro, it's because, like, we don't want to do the episode. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we're tired. The stuff in the episode is going to be stressful to do or boring to do or, like, we don't really have a good run of Mm -hmm. show. We're learning about those little robots again. Yeah, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Who cares? 
But that's not this set of this reading. <laughs> no. So no. we just got distracted before. We just got distracted. And it seemed too good not to record it. <laughs> uh-huh. We just have good instincts. That's mm-hmm. what that, that's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Would you uh, say Severian has good instincts in this section of the book? Everyone's got good instincts in this section, including the person who uh, goes out by themselves in the middle of the night to hunt the creature that hunts their husband. Mm-hmm. That's also a good instinct. Mm-hmm. Also opening the door when your husband appears. Great instinct. All right. Well, I feel like we've had our banter at the top. Do you want me to just read the summary? Do you want me to, to uh, march my way through this summary? Yeah, sure thing. You know what? It's light this time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I didn't feel like writing too much. <laughs> well, also not that much. Like stuff happens, but like truly, truly, yeah. Not 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 a huge amount of eventual things, but right. a lot of uh, weird stuff in the middle. So, all right, this is uh, the summary for episode nine of Shelved by Genre. We are halfway through Sword and Citadel. More than halfway. We're at the. We've read the third, uh, the second third of. Um, Sword of the Lictor, which means we are overwhelmingly close to the end. There's there's only four episodes of Book of the New Sun proper left, and then one episode for for Earth. So that's a thing worth thinking about. If you're yeah. if you're reading along, congratulations! Almost like you've there. made it, you've made it a big chunk of the way. You're going to get there easy. Austin, uh, before I read the summary, how close are we to where you stopped? We've reading? done it. This oh. is the, this is the reading. Oh my yeah. god! So you I don't finished, even know about the the end of this book. I don't know the end of this book. We are past it. I finished the tale of the boy called Frog. I'd started the circle of the sorcerers. I went, what's up with these weirdos? And then put the book. And then we were close enough to doing the podcast a year ago or whatever. I was like, let me just stop. Let me not mm-hmm. finish doing this. Let me just wait until we do it on the podcast. Cause then I can have somewhat fresh ears, truly a pretty good place to stop in terms of getting a good taste for what the book is or what the books are. And for like what the open questions are, uh, a really rewarding reread. Even stuff in this section has been a rewarding reread. And now I don't, I don't know what happens next. Who could say what, what goes on beyond these mountains? I have truly picked the perfect ending spot for this reading. Then. Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought you'd I'm gotten excited. through the next piece. I have not. I uh, had th- I had also thought that. Uh, mm-hmm. Cameron and I are not. We haven't talked about this, but I assume we're no. on like a similar wavelength because we know what's getting ready to happen. <laughs> Yes, the ne- the the next like three chapters after this reading are like, uh, I I can't think of another chat. They might be the most important mm. chapters in terms of just like, I things smashing into you with maximal force. Exciting! Mm-hmm. I love to be smashed wild. into with maximal force. Yeah, you hear some little footsteps coming. I wonder what they are. Anyway, mm. um, here's the summary. <clears throat> Severian flees into the mountains, maybe pursued by agents. He sleeps in the mountains thinking horrible thoughts, like about how the forests of the moon were planted in the youngest days of his species. He sees a house in the valley far below on the other side of the mountain and slowly makes his way there. He makes his his way there eventually and meets a dog, then a woman named Kazdo, then a boy, then an old man. She explains that her husband will be home before night and Severian asks to eat dinner and stay the evening. The little boy's name is Severian. Two Severians. How about that? What are the chances? The husband never comes. 
The woman leaves after him with an iron staff. The old man tells one of the best written stories in the entire book of the new son. And then Severian has little Severian tell whoever's in the attic to come down out of there. And oh my God, it's Aegea's music. She reveals that Hathor has been her ally since Nessus, and that all the weird creatures that have attacked Severian have been Hathor's cacogenic Pokemon, making him the doll-fucking Ash Ketchum from beyond the stars. Severian and Aegea talk about her killing him and him sparing her. Kazdo comes back and boards the windows and doors. She shudders everyone up because now Zabo is there. It speaks with the voice of Severa, Kazdo's daughter, which it had killed several days previous. Then it speaks in her husband's voice, but she's tricked and opens the door. Big as hell, it sidles in and tries to take out Severian. They fight, and it explains to Severian that the dead know they are inside the Alzebo, and that they want their family to be together. They make a deal that Severian will not hunt it or stay in the house the next day, and the Alzebo leaves. The next day, the family leaves. They're attacked by a group of zoanthropes, and the Alzebo defends them. And in the end, only the boy Severian remains alive. They build a cairn for Kazdo and the old man, and Severian declares that he's the boy's father now. Later, Severian reads little Severian a story about a boy called Frog. Then they're taken prisoner by nude painted men and split up. Severian is interrogated in a dark hole and has a full conversation with Thecla that he thinks is a memory but might not have been a memory. Severian gets little Severian back and then has to win a magic duel for their freedom. He uses the universal cheat code of the claw, but before that works, the actual honest-to-God blob from 1958's cinema classic The Blob comes through the door and kills the dueling mage. The Severians escape. They climb the mountain, which is carved in the shape of a man, and as they climb higher, they see it has a hand with a gold ring, which might profit them. They head for it. They find a dead city on the mountain, built long ago, and they investigate it. They enter a building and find a two-headed corpse sitting on a future couch. They decide to go find the ring to see if they can find uh, if they can take its gold and eventually make their way to it. Little Severian runs out to touch it, and when he does, it electrocutes him and kills him. Severian, distraught, vows to conquer time. He goes to sleep in the old city, and he's awakened by soft footsteps. And that is all that we read for today. That's all. That's it. That's all we got. No big deal. Whew. Whew. Exhausting. Hey, what do you think about these mountains? They look like people. Mm-hmm. Someone carved them, carved the whole dang mountain and put a highway up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I alluded to this uh, way back when we were talking about maybe the mountain where the uh, eight men lived. You know, they're living under that mountain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it is implied, you know, as I kind of hinted back there. Right. But in this chapter, in these set of chapters, it is implied that all mountains yeah. have like a dude on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Every time Severian talks about mountains, he talks about like foot and crowns, which are things that could apply to uncarved mountains. But you slowly come to suspect might actually just be what mountains look like to him. Yeah, that every mountain has got some dude on it. Yeah, the 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 Titan faces that loomed above me now were only those of the long dead rulers of Earth, haggard by time, their cheeks fallen away in avalanches. And even there, you're like, hmm, could it be a metaphor? And then, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. They're massive avalanche cheeks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, And I think that's pretty cool. I also really like the thing, this comes way later, though, but that uh, he's looking up and he's like, oh, yeah, the, the top of this, you know, you know, Mount Rushmore looking 
you know, ruler up there. There's there's uh, snow up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there must be water. Nope. It's so high that when the snow comes off, it just gets blown away. Yeah. <laughs> and that some of the snow that's been up there has been up there for like millennia, basically. Because yeah. if, it, if it's still up there, it's because it hasn't been blown away and it hasn't been blown away because it hasn't moved. Yeah. It's good. It's good mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, Where do y'all want to go? Yeah, Austin, or not, sorry, Michael. Oh, I, I just wanted to uh, suggest some intertexts that I think are interesting for what's going on with the mountains just in these descriptions. Oh, One yeah, is, um, oh gosh, the um, the gates in Lord of the Rings that I don't remember the name of. With uh, the two big guys? Yes. Willy, Willy Woo. Yeah, Willy Woo. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, Willy Wu, who, who stands at the edge Bonkus. of Gondor. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, the Peter pe- Jackson ones. Arganath. Yes. Right. Yes. <clears> is the of course what you're Arganath. thinking of. The Pillars of Kings. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's that, um, but also, uh, this description of a, uh, a mountain, like something as large as a mountain, right? A body as large as a mountain with, and this is a phrase that recurs a couple of times with a crown of ice or a miter of ice. Uh, this is also how Sauron is described in the Silmarillion at one point. Huh. huh. Yeah. So interesting. Just some things to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's a one and there's big ass dangerous ring. Uh-huh. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> That's very funny. Genius camp. Sneaking in the Lord himself. of the Rings. <laughs> they'll never. They'll never guess. They'll never see it. It'll take years. <laughs> I did share with Michael a thing I found. I was looking at some geographic stuff. Because, mm-hmm. right, South America, moving yeah. northward. Moving mountains. to the Andes, presumably, at this point. Maybe. You know, we don't know. We but don't I know. found a uh, like a, a an earthless serve post from, like, I don't know, the early 2000s, mm-hmm. Michael. I don't yeah. remember when it was from. Maybe even the late 90s. I think it might have even been the late 90s. That made a very impassioned case for the book taking place in yeah, this is the Mediterranean. 97. The book taking place in the Mediterranean, this is like the real, this is the birth of the Gene Wolfe Industrial Complex, right? Like what yeah. I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. It takes place in the Mediterranean, but after the the Mediterranean itself, like the the sea has been squished up into a river, and then that entire part of the world has rotated to be where South America used to be. <laughs> and, sure. the, and it's like an elaborate and like compelling, I guess, if you're willing to entertain that uh-huh. uh, explanation of those things. Uh, but it's very, yeah, fun. it's entertaining. That's an, that's an entertaining yeah. thought. I'm not, I'm not yeah. immune to that. I suppose it's yeah. not, but it doesn't seem like the easiest answer to what's going on here. Uh, and the most obvious one, but sure you can say anything, but yeah, but we're, yeah, we're moving into the Indies. I was just trying to get a sense of like, is there, is Thrax, you know, supposed to be a place and it doesn't really seem like right. It. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, let's say that that's right. Let's say that it is true that Gene was like, ah, ha, ha, the Mediterranean's a river now. <laughs> it's also South America, right? Like it's, it's pulling yeah. on, it, even if that's the actual real thing, the thematic and historical echoes of this place, the pompous, uh, you know, like yeah. this is, that mm-hmm. is also a purposeful maneuver, it, you know? So I'm not too, yeah. I'm not too worried. Well, I like that there's like a like a I don't know a geographical determinism to that, where if you know whatever, whatever continent ends there. up where where uh-huh. South America is supposed to be, you're going to end up inventing mate. You know what I mean? There's, there's yeah. no way you wouldn't. That's yeah. why we call it money. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. 
I mean, that's part of in that theory. That's part of how they uh, explain Apu Punchau, right? Is that yeah. like what is mm. happening there is that he is bringing back back like the literal South America with him. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. which is I, I mean, yeah, he does. He brings the world with him. Right. Damn. Punch out. All right. You know what? I'm a Mediterranean River truthist. <laughs> You're into it now. I'm into it. Didn't take a lot. I just that's, a, that's a real conversion involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Scales fell from my eyes. I'm a believer now. Apu punch out. He grabbed you. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he started assaulting you across time. <laughs> and I was like, this rules. <laughs> I will say. uh Severian society versus Apu Punchal society. Apu Punchal's whole deal seemed a lot better. I mean, at least, it, out, at least it know, seemed had, like Apu Punchal was there and people knew who he was and they got to see him do stuff. It's not this Autark situation where everyone's talking about him, but no one's ever seen him or know who's who he is. That's right. Yeah. He's at least a guy. You know? I, sorry. I, I You said the Apu Punchal Society. And yeah. I heard <laughs> that- the voice of uh, Major Kusanagi from Ghost in the Shell, a uh, standalone <laughs> complex solid state society, go, it's called the Apu Punchal Society. <laughs> there are a bunch of radicals who believe whatever <laughs> that that group believed. And the idea of the mm-hmm. Apu Punchal Society being the name in some like sci-fi cyberpunk thing it's it's a literary reference to these books in this in this version yeah. of my brain you know what i mean yeah. like it's explicitly that yeah i would join yeah it. you're putting that into friends at the table right oh yeah the apple punch society is now in uh the <laughs> no way that, cycle, that's not going in yeah 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 i'll find a space put them in space yeah it's where they believe they belong wow we learned about space in this okay we have to talk about this stuff mm-hmm. yeah because we have to get to pokemon master hathor or else i'll <laughs> <Yeah>. die <laughs> Yeah, All he's right. been the bad guy the whole time. I hundred percent so well, like, good. Yeah, no shit. But like in a way you couldn't have imagined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a way that was not not just bad guy regular, but bad guy jumbo size. Yeah, you know what I mean, exactly. like major bad guy. Yes. Um. I. You know. You get. I got to the bit where, you know, you're going through the mountains and stuff, and that's cool. That's cool. Um, uh, but then you get to like outside the, the, I guess, is there anything in, in the, into the mountains chapter that I'm forgetting that are cool? Uh, like the, like the, the constellations. Um, I mean, yeah, like that's the thing. Cameron has that in the notes and that's just the one thing that I would point out is that there's this really unusual moment that Severian has as he's going up into the mountains. And I say unusual, like for us, the readers, it's not unusual mm-hmm. for him. He's presenting it as very uh, uh, meaningful. Uh, it's unusual for us because we are seeing him in a way that he often is not, which is filled with childlike wonder at mm-hmm. looking up at the stars and trying to yeah. pick out the constellations and making up his own constellations. What do y'all think about this weird? Um, it's not weird. What do you think about this bit where uh, Severian sort of talks about the history of science fiction literature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where, where, you know, this is while he's looking up at the, at the stars and scaring himself of thoughts of, of Hather's eyes and stuff. And then he's like, you know, um, uh, you know, after I, I covered my head with my cloak because I was losing my mind thinking about Hather's eyes and the vastness of the galaxy and everything else. I started to imagine other worlds. And then he like, you know, he goes through. He's like, at first I was like, ooh, what if there's a planet with green skies and blue grass and giant moons? You know, like that's the the version of the science fiction, you know, uh, uh, pulp cover art, you know, world. And then mm-hmm. he's like, well, yeah. then I started thinking about what if there's a world where 
you know, um, people are, are all de- descended from a single pair of colonists and they treat each other as brothers and sisters. And then I thought of a world where there's no currency but honor. And then I thought of a world where, and he's doing the kind of social sci-fi, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, turn there. And then like, oh, wow, what if there was a world where like, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know. Then I complicated those thoughts even further and thought about how they fell into to themselves. And you know, well, what happens in the world where uh, it, it, there's honor instead of currency? What happens to the beggar who has nothing but his humanity? Can he beg for honor? Um, you know, how in the world where no one kills any animals, how are they clothed and fed? Um, and that's just like it's a one paragraph, you know, exploration of the last 50 years or 80 years of science fiction. Um, and what is Gene doing here? I have no idea. Also, is it, also some of this might become relevant later, like literally in the fictional sense, but, you know, in, yeah. in, in Severian's own narrative. But it's just it's such a strange, you know, it's not a diatribe, but a diversion. Truly nothing. We, we don't know. Yeah. Which, which gene think well, of science fiction? I, I have ideas, I think it's but... It's tied up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, it's tied up in the constellations thing Ooh. that happens here, too, mm-hmm. where he's, yeah. like, looking at the sky, because that's the first thing that happens, mm-hmm. right? He's, like, looking at the sky, and he sees all these constellations, and he starts, like, imagining new constellations. Yeah. And that actually is kind of a question, right? Like, <clears throat> you know, in a world where uh, an evil billionaire is polluting our sky with satellites that can, like, make shapes and shit now... Mm-hmm. You do wonder if he's inventing the snake with two heads or if, uh, you know, some asshole two billion years ago put the satellites that make the snake with two two heads to right. sell, uh, you know, whatever, uh, two-head snake, the, the two-headed snake toy oil, for obviously. children. <laughs> yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, it, yes. we could imagine something much more horrifying, and it's only because he's in the mountains and so close that he can see all this stuff. But... um. You know, I I think part of it is that it's tied into all the stuff that happened last time, and and in the end of Claw too. Take off your cloak; you can be anyone you want to be. Right, right. Mm-hmm. The this the world, a world could be anything. Right, mm-hmm. we could take off the world's uh, cloak. Y- yeah, right. You know the that Severian is thinking, and he's just speculating, like in the most classic sense of that that word. Right, he's speculating about the shape that things could be. Mm-hmm. And that progression that he moves through that you're pointing out, it's not just the history of science fiction, which which it is, but it is also additionally like, uh, because he even starts, he's like, I imagine them, they were all kind of like Star Trek, right? <laughs> he's like, they're all like me and they're all kind of that. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, what if they're not all like me? What would that mean? Right. And that's how he kind of gets to the social science fiction stuff. And I do, you know, I think some of this is track that's being laid for, we know he's the autark at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even mm-hmm. though he has stopped telling us that in the book, um, we we know that, and so some of it I, I think is laying track for thinking those thoughts later when we get to him in Citadel of the Autark. Other than that, I I don't know, My, Michael. Yeah, I, I'm sure you have some thoughts. Well, uh, the thing that I would uh, sort of point out and clarify, building off of something that Austin mentioned, uh, if you're not reading along at this point, we do not know that Heathor is uh, evil Ash Ketchum from Beyond the Stars, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is a thing we're going to get confirmed later. So uh, in addition to all of this kind of speculation that Severian is doing about what could a world be, right? He's he's forsaken his guild. Uh, his kind of uh, boundaries for what the world could be or how society could be are, are uh, opening up, being restructured, uh, or like potentially restructured, right? He's becoming open-minded in a way that he hasn't been before. 
all of this is happening, and also, seemingly for no reason, he keeps also imagining that it's Heathor up in the sky looking down at him, and that there are two stars in particular that are Heathor's eyes. And so obviously in a couple chapters, we're going to get confirmed that something is up with Heathor. But here at this moment, um, it's only, uh, I think, worth pointing out that uh, Heathor's presence adds that unease to something Mm -hmm. that could be overall positive. Right. So uh, looking up at the stars, we see kind of like this, you know, vast starry uh, field. There's a whole lot of good things that could come out of this, and there's also something unsettling about about it, right? There is uh, this character of Heathor who has been, up until this point, um, ingratiating, uh, but weird and not... Like, when he talks, it's almost nonlinear, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we don't know at this point that he is a sailor, but that is what we are going to learn, or rather it's like, you know, what Severian is going to put together, and that uh, uh, the connection between him and the stars is... Uh, more literal than what it seems like at this point. And um, we can continue to talk about this because, in fact, I think like this this little chunk of reading is starting to establish uh, some pretty big thematics that are going to carry through through the end of the the books, I think. Mm. We also previously had yeah. Severian's explicit description of Heathor's eyes and uh, the note that they like lived and danced while Severian did did his work. Up mm-hmm. on the scaffold, um, and so like to go from that to this to this like yeah those are those are stars and those stars are alive and on fire and like that's that's fun that's a fun uh, but also cold and just you know what I mean yeah. it, it, that mm-hmm. the the Dorcas's view of Heather's eye Heather's eyes were like they're cold and distant and dead and Severin's like no they are alive and scary and dancing and that yeah. is the light from these distant suns right it's both of those things well the the <clears throat> to follow up on the thing that, that Michael just said too. That I think really matters. And, you know, sometimes in the show, I'm laying track on purpose. And so and I'm not flagging that. Yeah. I'm laying track on purpose and flagging it here. And I've said a little bit about this before, but this really does matter. Just pertaining to what Michael just said. These books will not end in textual clarification. Mm-hmm. They will end in abstraction. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this is one of the kind of weirdly abstract, you know, digressions, I think is the word you use, Austin, that we will return to in order to resolve some abstraction cool. or at least address abstraction. Um, but, you know, we're not going to get to the end of Citadel and read the last 10 chapters and be like, all right, cool. Let's uh, that that all happened. And uh, we can write that all out in the summary and it will be easy to understand. Sure. It, it is going to kind of spiral in a very odd and uh, I think fulfilling and interesting way. But th- this will be one of the places we can return to at that moment to be like, all right, cool. uh, the same thing with um, uh, eschatology and Genesis. Mm-hmm. That, that's going to be another thing that we use to kind of understand what occurs, I think, mm. at the end of these books. Michael, do you the, think that's a fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, notably in this reading, we don't. I won't have much to say about it, but uh, eschatology and Genesis shows up in this reading uh, in a refracted way, right? Imagery from the play is recurring now in the text in specific ways that I'll point out when we get there because it's uh, later on in the reading. Yeah. Yeah. Then let me say one more thing about this chapter, which is that like uh, Severian is like a teen on his first solo road trip or like backpacking experience. <laughs> but have you ever looked at the stars? Literally that. I mean, literally, is, have is you ever this, looked at the stars? Is this not how uh, Douglas Adams came up with the idea of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? 
Is it? Is this what he did? He just walked out into Europe or whatever? And Yeah, that that's the story he tells is that he was backpacking through Europe and he had the Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe and he was like lying in a field looking up at the stars and he thought, why don't they make a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? <sighs> Incredible. Fuck looking off, up Douglas that. Adams. That's <laughs> Get the fuck so out of here. funny. How strange it is that the sky, which by day is a stationary ground on which the clouds are seen to move, by night becomes the backdrop for Earth's own motion, so we feel her rolling beneath us as a sailor feels the running of the tide. That night, the sense of this slow turning was so strong that I was almost giddy with its long-continued sweep. Like, and then, and then like getting high and what, looking at the constellations being like, well, what if there was a world where they didn't kill animals? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if there was a world where everyone knew that they were descended from two colonists and regarded <laughs> everyone as brother and sister? <laughs> um, and then, and yeah, then just if everyone's imagining vaults. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, what if there was one where everyone except for one person was addicted to gambling? <laughs> what if they put a bunch of gangsters in one and they were like, this is the gangster colony? <laughs> what if they played creepy music in the one and then drove people like crazy? What if the only thing they had to eat was beets? And in another vault that was connected by audio, the only thing they had was beats by Dre. I have even no idea what we're talking about. You should go watch Too Much Future, a show about the Fallout series. You don't have to. You, you should. Just, you could just vibe. No, mm-hmm. go do it. Not right the second. Wait until we're done. The other thing that he says that's important, I think, is he's like, and this is also extremely teen on their first road trip into the world. Um, He's like, I'm, bro, I'm going to go to space. Yes. I'm going to. Yes, I'm going. I'm going. I when used I, to think I was going uh-huh. and I thought I couldn't go. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that moon. I'm going. I do love that little note where he's like, you know, in some ways it was, it made more sense when I was little, when I was a little boy to be like, oh, I can go to space. But now as I got older, it seemed less less likely because my life got more delimited. Mm-hmm. When I moved out of the rocket ship, it seemed less possible. <laughs> but then, you know, I've been with the mirrors and then Jonas like threw himself into the mirror. Like who could say I'm not going to get another chance. And if I get another chance, I'm going to take it. I'm going to space, dude. Yeah. Anyway, I got to climb this mountain and don't worry. I'm not going to tell you the details of my long, <laughs> slow climb down the mountain. It really doesn't have anything to do with my story. But I do want to talk to you about what I saw as I climbed down the mountain for four pages. <laughs> the most badass mosaic you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, this is cool. I it, And it also makes you think, like, well, what is the mountain? Yeah. Like, is the mountain actual stone? You know, in the way that we think of a mountain. Right. And that's unclear. Or is mm-hmm. it another structure? Yeah, because he says it's, like, full of stuff. Yeah. You know, it could just be a big trash pile. Yeah. It could be a crashed spaceship, you know, that's like smashed into the ground. And mm-hmm. we just don't know uh, because, you know, he says there's like artifacts and and uh, uh, bones and stuff in it, too. Right. Which, mm-hmm. of course, is in the real ground. Like, that's a thing, mm-hmm. but might not be. I don't know. It's is productively ambiguous in a way that's really fun. This is, of course, a, a key plot point in the uh, my favorite anime, probably, Turn A Gundam. Uh, <laughs> very much just this. It's just this. Are those mountains or is there just stuff in there? Yeah. 
Well, what's the answer? You can go listen to the Great Gundam Project. In fact, Michael's yeah. on an episode of that with me from yeah, when we did yeah. Turn A Gundam. Uh, it's there's there's robots in there. Humanity there's robots buried and all monarchy. Okay, so yeah, okay. robots and monarchies, and then outside of the mountain is the invention of the nation state. Uh-huh. It's great. <laughs> oh man, that's a huge huge error. <laughs> yeah, dude. Let me tell you, the show thinks so too. <laughs> It doesn't know uh, what would be better necessarily, but like, boy, great show. Anyway. Yeah. Nation State's rough. Yeah. You start in, inventing borders and stuff. Yeah, yeah, dude. People who belong get them and people who don't. Mm-hmm. You start, uh-huh. you know. And what Turning if, uh, what if thinking the, about it. <laughs> what if the power to do that was not actually uh, tied up with representational democracy, but was really fundamentally about who had the control of uh, of, of the, the most important uh, methods of material production in any given era. What if that's who got to decide where those borders were drawn? Oh, that'd be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> if, that, if that happened in real life, that'd be awful. That'd be so bad. Anyway, he climbs down this mountain. There's mosaics on it. And then I, you get outside yeah, wait, 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 this house. Before we go yeah. what is the mosaics? What are the mosaics? He's too close to see it. I know, but what are they? He should look back when he yeah. was far enough away. <laughs> he really should have. He should have done one of those. Oh, it's Abraham Lincoln. He should have done yeah. one of those. <laughs> maybe it's it's Garfield. Garfield. Maybe it's Garfield. Maybe it's mosaics of the mountain that used to be there that mm. they replaced with new fake mountain, like a big holographic mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To cover the mountain. Yeah. Like a like a backdrop that you would paint. I don't. Yeah, it's wild. Like a lot going on here. And then yeah, he does not do the uh, iconic look back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, anyway, the thing right, I was going to say 20 minutes ago now when I was going to skip that whole chapter was just like you get to that bit outside of he, you know, he climbs down the mountains and, and all this. And and he's like, I got to find a place to like, you know, I've always heard these stories <laughs> about being out in the woods and you meet people who are very generous and hot, you know hospitable and maybe they can give me some water and some directions or whatever. Um, and you get to this bit where he's up, he's in the tree line and he hears the barking of a dog. Uh, and the first time I got there, I was like, oh, this is about to be a banger. Something wild. Like, I don't know why, but, like, the scene is set in this way. I don't know what's in that little house that the chimney smoke is coming out of. But the thing of, like, the dog is barking, and he, you know, comes to to communicate with the dog in a way that's like, I'm cool. I'm good. But let me call out so that I don't walk up and scare the people inside and get, you know, stabbed or whatever. I immediately was like, my my the hairs on the back of my neck are already standing on alert. There's something is happening in this little place, and then the door. Then what happens is he meets a little Severian, and he meets a woman who you come to know is named Casdo. And you know how I feel about women named Cass in this book already, <laughs> and what the what's going on there. And there's a little sister named Severa, and Aji Aji again turns out to be here. And then we get the stuff that we're about to describe, and it was just like. Some of the most rewarding reading uh, in the in this book so far for me. And then, yes, then I basically stopped reading right after it because that's how it worked out. But uh, but yeah, just instantly knew as soon as we got to this house that we were in, in for it in a really good way. Yeah, it, I, I can't really account for it. And maybe, Michael, you have a better sense of this. But it's not just the like, ooh, something's happening, which I, I agree is there. But there's a distinct horror tone to it. You know, and maybe it, part of it's that that Wolf does so much work here in several places in a way that he normally wouldn't do. You know, this repetition uh-huh, to be like, mm-hmm. this place is by itself. 
Yeah. It is in a clearing, but I can see it from far away, and I see there's nothing there. From the top of this mountain, there's nothing around it. Well, it's weird. I get there. Yeah. It's weird, right? It, and, you know, it, there's a little bit of descriptive language, but not a huge amount. I don't know. It, it is a really masterfully done suspense setup, mm-hmm. right, With, with that feels... Um, it doesn't feel tortured. It doesn't feel ha ha ha. It doesn't feel uh, overly set up or anything like that. It just really subtly is put on you. But by the time you get there with a dog by itself, you start thinking, "Oh, what's going on?" Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're slipping into a horror novel briefly here. Yeah, is the thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 we get to stay in Gene Wolfe's monster manual, um, <laughs> paying off the Alzabo, the thing that is has been haunting this novel for. The whole book, basically, since the very, very, very beginning. And getting to actually well, finally meet one is sick. Well, the horror novel thing, you know, this kind of feeling of all of this mm-hmm. is um, is very funny, given, like, how you're it, – it, it encourages you to read past some stuff. Uh, and one of, one of the things is uh, his introduction to the dog, uh-huh. which is very, very funny to me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to find the page. I don't know if I have it marked. But he basically is like, and I came into the clearing and the dog came and barked at me. And I said, I'm going to be nice to you, dog. And it then it was nice. And it was just like Triskel, uh-huh. except it had four legs. But <laughs> it was just like Triskel. It had nice eyes and a big tongue. And mm-hmm. it jumped all in brown fur. In short, it had a narrower skull and more of like a brown. It didn't look like a lion so much. But it was basically like Triskel. <laughs> yeah, and I love that like uh Severian sees to like the heart of dog nature. Yeah, and right. that's what like makes dogs like dogs, right? Is the way they act. Yeah. Which actually kind of runs into his uh race science that appears <laughs> later on in the section. <laughs> sure does. Yeah. Um which I don't take to be uniquely Severian's race science either, right? I think that, you know yeah. I think that is the the Commonwealth's race science. Um but you know, it's uh there's something about like the nature of the nature of the thing unifies the thing, uh-huh. right? Not mm-hmm. not the necessarily the physical characteristics. Because I don't think that this dog looks like Triskel in any way. Not by a Severian description, certainly. No. Yeah. Well, it's um, also not huge and hulking and half right. the size of a human right. being, right? Yes. Like, there's just like basic information that doesn't line up. Um, and he sets up that this is a house where... This is, you know, this fits his certain idea of, quote, one of those pioneering peasants who are the Uh glory and despair of our commonwealth because they are farmers and they will farm so much food in one year. And then the next year they will, you know, their fields will be fallow and and unfarmed uh, and uh, need to be supported by the state, right? Which – I don't know. I, at first, I was like, "Sounds like a broken system to me." But I guess if 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 this if this Commonwealth can actually extract that much food from these folks and then also support them the next year, rad, awesome. Uh, but I, I'm wondering where their their food in the next year actually comes from <laughs> because I don't know space that it's from the Altark. I don't know like space food. Oh, it's space food. Okay, sure, sure. No, sure. I don't know. I, I, this to me is like uh, editor of plant engineering, Gene Wolfe, ah. being like, excuse me, <laughs> did you know industrial agriculture is important and also farm subsidies uh-huh. exist? Very Without funny. No, no farms, no food. <laughs> no farms, no yeah, food. That's one of those, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah. But it's also delicately positioned because as we said, like they're, they're alone, right? They're uh, uh, 
when we talk about like the horror atmosphere here, I think part of it is we hear the dog barking. That's like Severian's first clue. And so uh, it's a cliche when when you're talking about literature mm-hmm. somewhere in the distance, a dog barked. Uh, but what that does is uh, lets you know that there's a world outside of like whatever the scene is. When I think that's mm-hmm. whenever mm-hmm. whenever somewhere in the distance, a dog barked happens like that's a thing that uh, right. you are being introduced to as a reader. It's like reminded like there's a world outside of this scene. So that's so literally how it goes, right? Like he yeah. explicitly says at the sound of the dog barking, the silence and wonder of the trees fell back present, but but infinitely more distant. Right. So Severian hears the dog barking and it's like, oh, there are people out here because he's been in the wilderness. He's he's escaped Thrax. And then he comes down and he sees like, oh, there's just one house here. It's yeah. not like a little like village. It's not a subdivision or something outside of a larger city. It is one house here in the wilderness with a dog. And that's, uh, as I said earlier, like a little weird, not weird in and of itself, but it's uh, uh, it's pointed in a way uh, that the uh, thing it ends up uh, evoking for me. Obviously, this is like non-chronological, but it's if you've seen the film The Witch, uh, Robert mm, Eggers, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that's the thing to think about is yeah. uh, in that particular context of like colonial expansion, uh, people who go beyond the particular purview of uh, Plymouth who end up uh, in kind of more the quote unquote wilderness and then they're subject to all sorts of other forces. And so uh, I think there's something else being evoked here uh, with that right in the background of the, these enterprising farmers of our Commonwealth who have I mean, and we learn eventually Whoa. that uh, Kazdo is from Thrax, right? Her right. husband yep. has like come up with some sort of weird scheme or plot to get them out here to, we don't really know the details, but it's made very clear that that is what happened is they left behind a more stable civilization to be farmers out here for question mark gain. And now we see what it gets them. Well, and speaking of Plymouth, of course, one of these chapters does end with the name Squanto. So yes, here we are. <laughs> yeah. We'll you ever uh, united, um, Abrahamic uh, faith traditions with uh, Squanto uh-huh. and the Jungle Book and the Jungle and Book the, and yeah. also the Jungle Book. Um, anyway, and then and then the another like a, a sort of um, response to the dog bark pulling the the, the uh, silence away is when Severian shouts to try to shout a greeting at whoever lives in the cabin, hoping that you know he doesn't appear unannounced and get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, his his greeting is, quote, you know, the trees in the sky swallowed it and left only silence. He can't cut through this, the silence the way that the dog can, which I really mm-hmm. love. And also, again, sets up this like, OK, we're limiting Severian's agency in, in, the, in the narrative in a way. He doesn't achieve the thing he wants to. We are moving into a space that's, you know, he says, it, I need to announce myself so that uh, no, there's, there's no, um, you know, misunderstanding about who I am or that I mean any harm. And I shouted, but the trees in the sky, in the sky swallowed it. So you don't know if, if he's walking to a place where his greeting has been received and he is going to be received warmly or not. So again, the, the tension continues to like. Can you imagine build. this guy knocking on your woodland door? <laughs> Wouldn't answer. No. Pretend we're not home. Pretend we're not home. He'd kick the door down. Severian would kick the door down. down. He'd be like, oh, it's abandoned. I'll kick the door down. (laughs) Severian has Bethesda protagonist energy in that way. A (laughs) hundred percent. You know? He's going to Fusroda that door right there. Yeah, a hundred percent. He spent 200 hours grinding out every uh, weird piece of, like, uh, like melee ability. You know what I mean? (laughs) 
the only guy with all of the two-handed sword abilities. Yeah, he's going to do a persuasion check in the middle of combat. <laughs> yes, to make you run around in circles. Right. Uh, so he goes inside. Mm-hmm. And he sees a little family. It's a woman, her dad, um, who seems to be lost in thought, but will later deliver a banging story. And a little boy. Mm-hmm. Literally, literally a banging story. I mean, <laughs> yeah. literally a banging story. Um. The little boy fucks up because so the, the, they're kind of at odds, right? They're not at odds, but they're at um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like you know, they're 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 being a little distant, right? They're they're not mm-hmm. quite. I think she's very carefully trying to take care of her family, and he's like, "Listen, I am sorry if I startled you. I am just trying to get some food and maybe some water, uh, and I will get out of here. I don't mean you any harm. Let me have a little mm-hmm. bit of uh, like a little snack. Let me mm-hmm. nap outside, uh, you know, inside to avoid the cold." I will help you fold sheets or I'll help you do whatever you need. And she's like, my husband will be home soon. And he's like, I got it. Cool. A hundred percent. Not trying to be a weirdo. And then the little boy is like, first time in my life, not (laughs) trying to be a weirdo. (laughs) The first time ever. I, um, you know, he doesn't say this part, but uh, in the last set of readings, I went through a life change. Um, I decided (laughs) I wasn't going to be a weirdo anymore. My girlfriend left me. Uh, I'm a good guy now. And for the first time in my life, I'm going to look at a woman without describing her thighs. Um, and <laughs> it happened. It happened. He he became a good guy. He looked at the stars a little bit, and he's mm-hmm. definitely just going to stay like this, right? He's not going to. This is not just a weird exception where Gene maybe forgot how horny Severian was. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Unless we'll find out. Um, Thin mountain air, you know what I mean? <laughs> Changes you. Well, and also we're about to stumble into some real psychoanalytic. Uh, uh, shit, right? And so yeah. you maybe Eugene was like, I'm playing with fire a little, a little bit here. <laughs> Let me back off. Right. Um, because we learn, of course, that the little boy's name is Severian, mm-hmm. uh, that that his sister, who he reveals is n- not to be seen, uh, and that Severian thinks has been hidden, is named Severa. Uh, family names, you know, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and Severian's read on this is like, oh, Right. The the mother told the sister who must be of age and someone who I would desire. Uh, you know what? Maybe not. Severian's that guy. Just someone I might desire. Uh, she smartly hid her away. That's what's going on here. Folks, it was not what was going on here. No. But it works because it is so plausible. Yeah, totally. Right? Like, yes. we don't really have, like, we know Severian gets things wrong or misunderstands things. But in this instance, and this is part of what makes everything, like, so the scene setting, this lone cottage and all that, that's there. And then uh, part of the other s- stuff that's going on that makes this feel like prime for horror, even though at this moment it is not quite horror, is precisely this uncanniness of, oh, suddenly, like, this little boy is also named Severian? Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. That's that's odd. Uh, and then Severian thinks this thing about the the Severa in the in the attic, essentially. It's like, well, that yeah, that makes sense. Huh? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then the old man sitting by the fire, not speaking. And then eventually when he does speak, he he has that story that's about Fetchin, right. uh, the artist, which comes out of nowhere. And, and is like the curator mentioned to Fetchin before, right? The yes. artist. Yeah. Yes. yes Fetchin's one of the masters. Right. 
right? Yes, that's uh, the the guy who uh, did his portrait when he was a kid yes. that got him into curation to begin with. Mm-hmm. So right. just out of well, nowhere. And Severian's shaving with his sword. Like everything yeah. is so on high tilt. You know what I mean? Right. Like they're having this conversation. She's like, do you always shave with your sword? And he's like, yeah, it strengthens my arms. I always do this. And she, you know, he's she's like, you're a soldier then? He's like, I'm a butcher of men. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Great. Um, <laughs> the, the, it's just a tense scenario. Everything feels like it's about to fall apart um, in a really cool way. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that story? Is that is that what the does the story come the story comes before everything else exploding, right? She well no. So she um they she's like my husband's going to be back, my husband's going to be back, right. my husband's going to be back. Son is going down. Yeah. And her husband's not back. And so they um had they eat and then she says, "I'm going to go look for my husband. I'll be back. Don't worry about it." Yeah. And she takes her, you know, iron staff and goes out leaving Severian to take care of Severian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when the, all these other things start happening. Yeah. So simultaneously, this is also kind of, you know, real thriller horror kind of stuff. Simultaneously, the old man tells his story while little Severian is going to get the person out of the attic. And those things are parallel happening at the same yes. moment. Big Severian with one another. says, I guess actually the previous chapter is, while it ends with the with a paragraph where uh, she's like, my husband could give you better directions to avoid the main mm-hmm. street, you know, the main roads and go north or whatever. Um, and then while she spoke of soldiers moving north, someone else much nearer was moving as well. It was a movement so stealthy as to be scarcely audible above the crackling of the fire and the harsh breathing of the old man, but it was unmistakable nonetheless. Bare feet, unable to endure any longer, the utter motionlessness that silence commands had shifted almost imperceptibly, almost imperceptibly, and the planks beneath them had chirped with the distribution of new weight. And then you turn the page, and the next chapter is, he is ahead of you, which mm-hmm. these chapter titles continue to, to be really fun, page turn, you know, uh-oh, something's about to happen, right? Um, and yeah, you're right. You know, he sends little Severian, he's like, go get your sister. Like, I know she's up there. Go get her. And then we get the story about Fetchin, which is about the old man being a little, uh, being a guy, a young guy, and hanging out with young wild boy Fetchin who had monkey yeah. arms. Yeah, he was like yeah. a little hairy kid. Yeah, who was a thief. Yeah, and he would trade stuff. He never kept anything. Yeah, and he never had. But he paper. was like a perfect, you know, he was an artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's great. I love the. There's like a sort of. Um, I mean, there's bits of this feel like um, like James Joyce or something, yes. right? This, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. This like childhood story of these two boys who clearly have a great deal of affection for each other and are like trying to make their way in the world. And the the bit where the old man rips the pa- he gets paper to write uh, uh, to write a list for his mother. I forget what the what the list is. Even He's supposed up. to write a letter for his mother. A so letter. he goes to school and yes. gets some paper, and he like really the James and Joyce paper's is, rare. You don't get yeah. paper. You write on the right. boards. You erase the boards normally. Right. And so he's got this you know fairly big legal sized piece of paper maybe, and he really describes it. You know, and it seems like it's it's made paper. You know what I yeah. mean? This is not a white sheet of printer paper, right? Mm-hmm. He describes and, it as uh, uh, like uh, salmon and milk. Like you can see yeah. the flecks in it. Yeah. Yeah. And so he grabs that, you know, and takes it and he, he knows, and you know, Fetchin's his great friend, 
Fetchin's yeah. great at, at at drawing, right? And at being an artist, they're little kids. And so he knows that he can get the letter done in half the amount of paper. Yeah. And so he ch- tears it in half and gives it to his friend. Um, you know, this moment of like extreme charity. And in some other kind of story, right? It would be Fetchin draws something beautiful and he has it, you know, and it becomes an important, you know, uh-huh. you, you can imagine a, a more pat version of the story. Uh, it doesn't go there. Fetchin takes it, goes inside, has sex with a girl, right? Because they're all like teenagers or young teens uh-huh. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Goes and has sex, presumably paints, or not paints, but draws her picture for her in yeah. trade for it. Um, comes back out and convinces her to give the now old man uh, some food. So he also mm-hmm. gets like a benefit of, uh-huh. the, of the picture. Then he draws the old man's you yeah, know, the, the old man who was a boy draws him on the other side, and they're beautiful uh, pictures. And then Fetchin takes them. And he keeps he never, them. Yeah. yeah, he keeps them. Yeah, he it's always kept so his, his pictures. Well, and there's a stuff in here where he's like, Fetchin loved to draw. And while we walked, I thought about that and how his face would look if he had paper to make a picture he could keep. So that was right. the intention, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. he yeah, was yeah. giving him a gift of paper so that he could draw something for himself. And then later he describes to him, he describes, he says, that was the brightest day I've ever seen. The sun had new life to him the way a man will when he was sick yesterday and will be sick tomorrow. But today he walks around and laughs so that if a stranger was to come, he'd think there was nothing wrong, no sickness at all, that the medicines in the bed were for somebody else. Um, and and that is, that is you know, he explicitly says this later. He's like, um, the light, the light of the sun, the light of it on Fetchin's face was more than I could stand. And it's like mm-hmm. he's drawn this line between the new sun, right, and mm-hmm. the emotional um, beauty and the emotional joy on his friend's face, um, his friend who he loves deeply, right? Uh, great, beautiful, Lo- three pages, and just like just as good as any of these other, you know, long d- digressional stories that would get their own chapters. Yeah, and it doesn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? Like it's not like there's a like a pat ending or whatever, right? Right. The, we get the the final. We get the he drew the picture on one side of the paper and the girl on the others, but he kept the pictures. And then the ladder creaked, and I mm-hmm. turned to look, <laughs> screaming. Great pacing. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. Well, and it, and that's part of like the whole uncanniness, right? Is that that story doesn't seem to go anywhere, especially because we've had Fetchin on. It's always been the curators. Now we have this guy who just happens to have known Fetchin when he was a child. Mm-hmm. Like these coincidences. It's like Severian and Severian. How are these piling up? And then who's that coming down the ladder? Oh, it's Agia. Remember uh-huh. her? Like just out of nowhere, she's uh. here. And then she has this conversation with Severian where it turns out she's taken on. a. So one of the uh, ways that I want to frame this is that this is almost like a Charles Dickens novel. With all of these coincidences piling up in very yeah. short order, uh, like these revelations, these like weird, unexpected connections and echoes. And then Agia is here and she basically admits to Severian to have taken on the position like the, you know, quite classical, like literally position of his nemesis. She is just out to destroy him and has been trying to destroy him since the first book. And she's been running around with Heathor behind the scenes the entire time just to mess with him. Everything we thought we knew comes crashing down. It's so good. And is uh, I truly love Aegea and Severian in every scene they're in. Uh, it's the only real relationship in the book that works 
for me. I simply mm-hmm. love it yeah. when a nemesis appears and uh, snipes at our hero, you know, literally and, fig- and, and in conversation. Yeah. And then reveals that like everything bad that's happened to you over the por- past 300 pages has been because of me. Uh-huh. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. And it's so unexpected in this book that doesn't seem committed to that. Yeah. Um, and, and of course he ha- Severian has to be like, I know who Hedor is. I know. I figured it out because my <laughs> friend Jonas was also a sailor and had names for all the monsters. And Hedor had was the one who said that it was called a salamander. And that sounded like, like Jonas would have called it a salamander. So I figured he was also from space. <laughs> yeah, there's a real uh, Severian telling you a bunch of things that happened uh-huh. and being like, and and therefore... I knew all of it the whole time Mm -hmm. because of these events that I can recount for you (laughs) that require no interpretation that are just statements. Yeah. Well, and then you get this, this is the exchange where I was like, I love these two characters so much. Uh, AGS smiled thinly. So now, you know, all, and you have me where you want me provided you can swing that big blade of yours in here. I have you without it. I had you beneath my foot at the mind mouth for that matter, but I still have my knife says Agia and draws the knife as soon as the as soon as Kazdo comes back in the door. Uh, so good. So great. Big fan. Well, I really like the whole, like the setup here is she, haythor has been in the book since, since we first met Agia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, which is, which is great. Yeah. Right? Do you want to unfold like, what that relationship actually is and what? Yeah, what yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so she mentions, you know, that this guy is trying to get her attentions all the way back. Mm-hmm. You know, I think during the yeah. botanical gardens is when they talk about it, right? Yep. Uh-huh. She's like, there's an old sailor who's, she doesn't say courting me, but like, there's an old sailor who is like after me and he keeps kind of like begging me for attention. He's right. in my Insta it, comments. Yeah. So that's Hathor. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as Agilus is killed, basically, uh, executed, she just gets to work on Hathor, right? And kind of, um, you know, uh, wiles him away. Feminine wiles. This is some real, like, genre shit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, starts bending him to her will. Mm-hmm. Makes it a little unclear. Like, is Hathor's whole deal an act or not? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. We don't know. We with truly the, don't know. Genicons or whatever. And the- right. Like, uh-huh. like, is his whole kind of stream of consciousness, where is he at any given moment? Uh, his love for torture, right? Is, is that an act? Like mm-hmm. in this into this reading, we do not know one way or the other. Um, but so yeah, everything in Jean's monster manual that has attacked them—that's been Hathor. Uh, and uh, Severian has to have like a long set of thoughts about like maybe this happens later. But he's like, does, where does he keep funny. them? Yeah, yes. where does he keep all this stuff? That's he's after like, he it, fights the Blob. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's like, could the black ooze and the salamander have been in the same cart? That seems unlikely. <laughs> how does yeah? Basically, he he just starts thinking. How does Heathor transport his menagerie? Yeah, God, uh, it's such a good villain. Like it's such a cool idea. Like like Jonas sets this up with the nodules and is like, yeah. Sometimes people hunt with these types of creatures. I've seen this up in space, mm-hmm. and and. You know, it can be hard sometimes when you're reading a book like this to, to know, like, okay, that's just some world building detail, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and that's the trick of it, right? You think, like, oh, cool, a new detail about the world. Like, people in space sometimes hunt with these captured monsters, uh, and then of course, no, actually, it's it's just the plot. Jonas telling you what yeah. the plot of this book is. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's also telling you how Hathor got them, yeah, because Jonas knows about them because they went to a place, yeah. 
you know, that had them yeah. you know, because he's sailing around the stars. Well, that's what Hathor did too. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that gives you this kind of like, oh yeah, of course, right. you know, like you go into port, you get your, your evil creature, uh-huh. you store it away, you have fight the local gym leader, <laughs> you go home. Well, and it's the the other thing that I love about this is that it's such a great like development of Heathor's character who I didn't say this back when he was first introduced, but I remember reading this book for the first time or, you know, Book of the New Sun for the first time and thinking this when Heathor was introduced back in Shadow uh, is that the way that he talks and sort of the way that he presents himself is so clearly modeled on Gollum. Uh, mm-hmm. With the kind of subservient, yes, master, yes, master, like, let us, you know, follow you, that sort of thing. Right. It's it's a uh, Gollum leading Sam and Frodo through mm-hmm. the marshes and whatnot. Uh, and, at, at, you know, at first reading, it's just like, oh, OK, so, you know, in, in the same way that Gollum represents kind of like this utmost pitiful, like what you end up as when you dedicate your life to this evil thing. Here we have Heathor, right? He, mm-hmm. He's in some way like obsessed with his Genicon and with torture and, and mayhem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he wants to serve Severian. So that is implicitly then a threat to Severian's like moral character, right? Like Severian could be the thing that Heathor seems to worship, except here it turns out he's not your golem or rather like the golem goes one level deeper, right? He, he is in mm-hmm. fact doing the golem thing where he's like trying to, uh, he's presenting himself as servile in order to thwart Severian, uh-huh. but he is working not for a uh, uh, kind of like necessarily Severian's embodiment of torture. He's working on behalf of Agia who mm-hmm. here again is showing up as this nemesis. And when we get into the stuff with the Elzebo is uh, like, Hitting the point, I think, like what is one of the key points of the book? Like that is that is the function that Agia serves during the Alzabo fight where she's like, did you know? Did you know that Severian used this to put his girlfriend in his brain? It's so good. The uh, I mean, you're bringing up a really important thing that's incredibly prevalent in genre literature uh, that we have not brought up yet. But it's a fundamental question that you're supposed to ask of of every character who is subservient, you know, and, and they, they teach you this in college, Mm -hmm. right? They teach you, they teach you this in middle school, teach you everywhere. You might read a fantasy book. When someone appears, you're supposed to say, whose golem is this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they, you know, you do the thing, thesis statement, you know, supporting claim evidence. Whose golem is this? You lift up Mm -hmm. the left foot to see if there's the brand of the person whose golem it is on there. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that's not there, then you got to start working. Who are they mentioning? You know, Gynacon, uh-huh. uh, Precious, you know, all that kind of all stuff. All the stuff that it could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the stuff mm-hmm. it could. You got to start listening it out. It's uh-huh. a big part of, uh, re, you know, you diagram a sentence. Uh-huh. Whose golem is this? These mm-hmm. are like big parts of education. In the, in the kind of post-Bush years, we've lost that. Yeah, you know? well, for me, like, I just go with, you know, um, a golem with brand, a friend on your hand, a golem right. unmarked. It's about to be dark. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah. uh, and this this was an unmarked. You know, it was like, well, wait. I thought I, I think Heather is towards Severian, but we didn't yeah. check. We didn't do the deep dive. We didn't really mm-hmm. do the analysis. I wrote only three of my five page essay, and if I finished writing those, <laughs> if I tried to get to the conclusion, yeah. I would have realized yeah. I couldn't just simply restate the intro, and it would have yeah. felt like something was missing, and I would have I would have had a question mark. Yeah, you gotta you gotta reason your way to the ending. Mm-hmm. You can't just, you know, it's not just a loop. Uh, also, the, uh, here, more of the Dickens um, uh, coincidence, you know, oh, we just passed by you <laughs> by a day. The fact that they stayed at the duck's nest 
yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> they were all hanging out in the same hotel the whole time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we lost track of you for a while, but we, we wound up in Thrax because we knew you were going towards Thrax and we were staying at this hotel. And the next thing you know, the little the woman in the little Garrett room was the mad girl you found in, in the Botanic Garden. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Well, I it re, it's very funny, too, because it recasts the whole thing where, like, uh, 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 Dorcas. Yeah. Was like, Haythor came to see me. And now it's Haythor. It, that's not what happened. Haythor was like in the room down the hallway. It just yeah. happened to see her. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like he did not come there. He was just there, which I really like. That's a very like Seinfeldian almost. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, he just happened to be there. Um, here's a question for you. You think Haythor and Jonas were on the same ship? Yeah, I do. You do? I, I think it's fun. I think that it's mm-hmm. like maybe a little too clean, but the timing is really fun and good. Mm-hmm. The idea yeah. that like, he crashed his ship here, uh, and Jonas the robot, he had to become Jonas the cyborg, the reverse cyborg. And, you know, Hathor escaped on an escape pod with his little creatures or something. I don't know. Because we talk, he explicitly says that that's not his real name, right? Then he has yeah. a much older name, one that anyone's ever heard of now, which, which we heard something similar when um, Jonas met the, what was the name of that family? In I don't the, think they had a name, but they talked about the name Kim Lee Soong. Right, Kim Lee Soong. Yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he was like, "Have you heard that name, Severian?" Yeah. So there's, uh, I mean, my preference here uh, is to say that they were maybe generationally the same, but they were not mm. on the same ship. Sure. Uh, just because I prefer to, I, I prefer the idea that there were like more ships than that one. Sure, that but, makes sense. Um. Well, uh, we'll learn more about yeah. that later, uh-huh. about about being more ships than one. Mm-hmm. We will. A little bit of uh, teasing me here. <laughs> Something. I don't know. It's Earth and you, son, shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, it doesn't count. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so we get all that information, and then that's where the chapter title comes from, because she's like, hey, he's still up ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he's up there waiting. You know, I'm here. He's there. Also, she's wearing the same gown that she was wearing like a billion years ago. Yeah. Like the same clothes. She's got one goal. It's killing Severian, making his life a living hell. Queen. Um, Woman comes back, says, couldn't find him. Couldn't find husband. Uh, And then she is almost immediately followed by the the, the sounds of little Severa, a little girl, Mm -hmm. you know, hooting and hollering outside and she starts uh boarding up the windows and doors and this is one of the coolest things in the book period yeah like in any of these it's where so so severian is like oh shit we gotta you know i gotta help presumably adria won't kill me as soon as i start helping so he goes and picks up a shutter you know it's like you know big woodblock shutters that you would have kind of classically and as soon as he does it, she tries to kill him. Yeah. And so he's quick enough to turn around and he he catches, you know, it's it's like a real 80s movie, you know, moment, right? He blocks it with the trash can lid, you know, <laughs> kind of maneuver. Uh, that's what the Ninja Turtles would do. But yep. he, uh, you know, blocks it with the shutter. Her knife goes in the shutter and then he just puts the shutter or no, uh, the, um, uh, the, the woman grabs the shutter and then just puts it in the window with the knife handle out. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I just like you just gave it a weapon. We just gave whatever you whoever you're afraid of a weapon. And Casto says the killer line: "It has no need of knives." Yeah, it's so like what good. Setup. And the storm is happening. Ah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a storm coming in and like yeah, already th- the child's voice. We ne- we didn't say this like Severian hears a little girl's <laughs> voice outside and it says, uh, father, can't you help me? <laughs> it's Oof. banging. It is so good. This, this is the gif of, uh, of someone writing with the fire pen, you know? Yeah. Yes. When I said a couple episodes ago that there is a part of this book that I think about every day, I am speaking about this scene. <laughs> Yes, a hundred percent. This is this is. Uh, can we spend two? This is from um, April. Can we spend two episodes on the chapter where the Alzabo has them trapped in the cabin? That's this episode. It's, it's good. I just want to read the whole thing. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So, what the hell is the Alzabo? Like, what's it look like? It's yeah. Okay. Like, how it's does tall. Work? Yeah. It's a hippo bear, I think. Mm-hmm. Actually, can, can I be honest with you? It is, uh, you know, you shouldn't watch this film because the AMPGP have not yet made a deal uh-huh. with the WGA or the actors. Yeah. Uh, so I don't encourage you to do it. But here's the deal. In Alex Garland's uh, Annihilation adaptation, uh, sure. uh-huh. he just puts the Alzebo in there. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And it's great. It is excellent. Yeah. That scene is so clear. I mean, I maybe maybe it came from somewhere else. But th- when I was watching Annihilation and that scene happened, I was like, shit, we filmed the Alzabo. We did it. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a, you know, something bigger that no, I mean, I guess it could be like a like a grizzly bear size mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. But, it, but it's up it, to someone's shoulder, got, right? It's up to, yeah. to Severian's shoulder or something. I think it's got, I think it looks, you know, in my mind, whatever, it, because uh, somewhere in here, maybe when talking about Hathor's creatures, you know, there's this discussion of the earth was depopulated of non-human animals. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then we had to replace them all with like facsimiles. And yeah. I was able is one of those facsimiles, that, you know, so it's, it's got shapes of things that are kind of like, so in my mind, it's like kind of looks like a hippo, but with a bear's fur. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. It's kind of a, a hippo snout, I think. Yeah, it's got it. It uh, stands upon four legs. It's got hulking shoulders. Uh, its teeth gleam white. Its eyes glow red. They're called red orbs. It's got some sort of like fur on it. Definitely bear-like in some ways, and in other ways, not so much. Right. Yeah. Well, and explicitly, I mean. Bear is an important touchstone here because when he hears it move, its soft, heavy tread is exactly the sound that sometimes came through the barred ports of the Tower of the Bear, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that they have El Zabo in there, but they might. Uh, you know it'd be loud as hell. Just dropped a thing in the chat for you. Uh-oh. Let's see what it is. Here. Ah, no. Oh, no. It doesn't look like that. <laughs> It would have to be taller, Michael. Maybe it's a baby <laughs> one. Maybe this is Triskel. Yeah. Yeah, that's closer to Triskel. Michael just smile dogness. Yeah. Yeah. Put smile dog on me, Michael. All the time. I'm sick of getting smile dog by Michael. <laughs> Every day I wake up. Oh, smile dog. I'm, I'm in I'm in the Austin and I are private chatting all the time. Yeah. God, Michael keeps smile dogging us. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes Michael will send me links like, oh, the new Dragon's Dogma 2 trailer looks good. Here's a link. And it's just smile dog. <laughs> And he doesn't even hide the link. It's michaellutz.com slash smiledog.jpg. Yeah. (laughs) Anyhow. Um, uh, It talks. Well, and uh, before, I mean, yeah, it does talk. It does talk. It's sick. Um, Yeah, because uh, dad's dead, Mm y'all. Yeah. I love that reveal. Uh Because there's a different, 
right. There's a, uh, you know, we could, we could be, um, little red riding hooding this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. The, uh, the thing comes in, it's dangerous, whatever, blah, blah, blah. blah. Papa shows back up. Axe. Boom. Right. Kills it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Right. He's killing his own daughter because she's in there. Yeah. All that kind of, no. Open, darling. Yes, I'm injured, but the pain is nothing much. Incredible. Yep. Yeah, because what the the owl, we know that the tincture is made right that allows you to do that that puts Thecla into Severian and all that kind of stuff. That's from the Alzebo. Yes, mm-hmm. the antelope, which is we, but we, we don't really know what it is as a like what is the thing in it. What is the phenomenological happen? experience of being the Alzebo? Right. Well, it looks like it's a depository uh-huh. for anything it eats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, consciousness is it that it eats, and they're not like trapped in in the body of a creature they can direct the creature mm-hmm. like seemingly. they puppet it yes yeah, or it's lying or or it, i was gonna say right. or it is puppeting them right that's right. the nightmarish right. thing about the elzabo it is it is hellish right it is fiendish uh this is severian describing it the red orbs of the elzabo were something more holding neither the intelligence of humankind nor the innocence of brutes and it's established very clearly that this is not one of heathor's creatures he asks uh, Agia, he's like, is this one of yours? And she's like, no. Like, she you does, wish. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> this is where she digs into him, right? Well, like, he's trying to explain what it is. And he's like, um, uh, it's an Alzabo, the creature whose glands the antelept is made. The antelept being the the, the mm. meal that they had, which is like antileptic, which uh, here we are again, by the way. Uh, an antileptic is something that either heals you or is. Um, like uh, uh, a flashback in a story, right? Mm-hmm. And so healing and oh, yeah, time travel, uh-huh. and like analepsis, exactly, um, are are once again like the claw itself, right? Like viv- like vivamancy. It's is it time travel or is it healing, and what is the difference between the two? Um, but this is where Agia really twists the 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 knife, the Thrax River shaped knife. Um, uh, Castor says it's an Alzabo, yes, but I don't know nothing of any analept. Agia laughed. But Severian does. He's tasted the creature's wisdom and carries his beloved within himself. I understand one hears them whispering together by night in the very heat and sweat of love. I struck at her, but she dodged nimbly, then put the table between herself and me. Aren't you delighted, Severian, that when the animals came to Earth to replace all those our ancestors slew, the Alzaba was among them? Without the Alzaba, you would have lost your dearest Thecla forever. Tell Casto here how happy you are, that the Alzabo, uh, how happy the Alzabo made you. To Casto, I said, I am truly sorry to hear of your daughter's death. <laughs> Great. And this is like one of the core, uh, I think, thematic uh, cruxes of the book, right? This is something that, uh, to me at least, right, and in terms of like provocations that this uh, book makes for interpretation, this is one of the ones that you really have to like turn around in your head uh, mm-hmm. because Agia is to some degree right. This monster, this like horrible thing that eats people and seems to uh, – resurrect them inside of itself and then either allows them to puppet it to continue to eat like other people that those people knew or like uses their voices as uh, simulations in order to feed further uh, this like vile hellish thing is also the thing that is in a roundabout way responsible for uh, Severian getting Thecla into his mind mm-hmm. and that is 
overall, it seems to be, at this point at least, a thing that the novel is suggesting has been good for him. That that something good, in fact, has come of this uh, vile, vile creature uh, that is, yeah, just, I mean... It's maybe because I've read too many uh, like medieval and early modern treatises on witchcraft and whatnot, but like just the way it is described is fiendish. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and you have to make a judgment call, like which is what I like about it. There, there's nothing in this text that will resolve for you. Is the all is the uh, is it lying or not? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it is it authentic or is it not? There is no piece of text here that will allow you to say at the last instance, it is evil or it is good, or these, you know, these people are not in there, right? They're just voices to wear. There's nothing. You have to make a judgment call. Well, uh, I, think and that, I, that, I think that's great. That is also kind of ideologically and theologically where we leave this section, like not to get into the specifics of that yet, but Severian has that thing at the very end of this section of the reading where he, he describes how you you can see the failure of a miracle, um, but seeing even one miracle work uh, proves that like the, it, it's a it's a it's a God works in mysterious ways thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's that it's that uh, da, 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 da. and even a seemingly purposeless miracle is an inexhaustible source of hope because it proves to us that since we do not understand everything, our defeats so much more numerous than our few and empty victories may be equally spa- uh, spacious, right? Um, the the world is better for there being strange terror in it because it means that you can have hope for wonderful things as well. Wonderful, yeah. you know, irrational possibilities are opened. And I feel like that suddenly felt like the theological core of this. Um, mm-hmm. Or oh, yeah. feels like, you know, this is a Catholic uh, who has come to terms with with all of the darkness of Catholicism mm-hmm. and has and has kind of sanded the edges down uh, to say this is where the faith comes from for him, you know. Um, or that's my read as a ex-Catholic. Yeah, well, and and know? there is a miraculous moment here, right? That yes. if, even if you're a, a a hardliner, I mean, it's not in this exact scene, but. There, there's a, you know, this kind of miraculous moment that happens later when the, when it comes back, right. Mm-hmm. When they're, when they're leaving and there's the fight that happens, we'll talk about it in a minute. But, uh, if, if all it wanted to do was eat them yeah. and consume their flesh, there would be no reason for the Alzebo to do what it does. Right. Yep. Right. If it, if mm-hmm. it is, if it is not controlled by the will of the people in there and that these desires are authentic, right. Mm-hmm. There'd be no reason for it to like intervene in anything. Just wait and eat the corpses. Well, and right? this ends up hitting the big conversation later about instinct and will and ideology. Yeah. Yes. Which is that like, okay, it wants to consume them. Does it want mm-hmm. to consume them because the the father and Severa are in there and they want to be reunited? Is that a versus going to eat someone else, for instance, right? Um, uh, it seems more interested in eating them, for instance, than Agia and Severian, right? Like that, mm-hmm. it will eat them, but like it wants the family. Mm-hmm. Is that simply a, a physiological thing that the Alzabo eats and follows the, the physiological connections of whoever it's eaten most recently? It's not clear and it doesn't re- – it never resolves uh, in this section yeah. at least, right? Which I really love. No, I, I, and it doesn't resolve. Yeah. yeah I, it, Listen, man, you, know, you keep I'll, telling me something about Earth, uh, the Earth of the new sun. I'm worried I'm going to turn the chapter and it's going to be like, and here's how the Alzabo works. I, I, I do, thankfully I don't think that happens, but yeah. man, good God, maybe, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked if there's like two sentences like actually the, the Al Zabo, um, it runs on pins oil and it's, uh, 
You know, the machinery oh. operates in such a way that pressure is built up that, that makes the memory juice go. Mm-hmm. It, it, like, I wouldn't be, you know. And each each personality is in a different chamber, and it revolves around a central uh, 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 zone and that loads them into the pr- front, frontal cortex. Uh, also, God is there. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if that occurred, but I don't believe it does. Anyway, so this whole thing is happening, and then, you know, talking about this kind of pre-modern... Uh, you know, witchcrafty kind of thing, Michael, like a deal with the yes. devil is struck, yes. right? You know, and it and it has laws and, you know, it's real D&D-ass stuff. It is. In the sense that D&D is pulling off of that tradition. Importantly, right? it gets in and we get the showdown with the two of them walking around the tables with the blade drawn and Severian is yeah. like, I, I can, you know, I can't quite see, but if I can get one good swing... I can probably cut its head off. And he well, does he just get needs one. light. He just he needs just light. light. And constantly he is like, someone literally just give me light. <laughs> just drop a, a lit candle down here. I'm begging you. He, all he needs them to do is throw something into the fire. It's not even that, like, you know. Yeah. He doesn't even need the candle. He just needs them to make the fire that currently exists bigger. Yeah. And they, no one will do it. They, and it's they so, just go up. It's so course. good that it has the husband's voice so that it can mm-hmm. taunt him. Their back and forth is just so good. Well, and at one point, doesn't it switch between the husband's voice and the daughter's voice? It does. Right. It's so because Severian says it doesn't it it does not have the look of human intelligence about it, but it has like rhetoric. Right. It knows when to use which voice. And there's that. I love that bit where um, everyone else has climbed up into the attic and Severian like pushes the uh, uh, ladder away. And it says, do you think I could not push over that table and climb up there? I who can speak. Right. Uh, And that's using the little girl's voice specifically, which is so it's so good. Yeah. Just shoot this one segment of the story. I don't need the whole book to be or the whole series to be filmed or animated. Just this, just the adventure down the yeah, mountain could, into this. Yeah, you could do this as its own standalone episode of, you know, some uh, yeah, like fantasy uh, beasties, anth- right? You know? Anthology show, yeah, right. Uh-huh. You could do that easy, mm-hmm. no question. So he makes it a deal, and the deal is, um, Severian will leave the next day. You know, so he'll get out of there. Yep, because the Alzebo mm-hmm. wants his family. And uh, Severian will not hunt the Alzebo. Uh-huh. That's it. So the Alzebo leaves, makes a deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. he cut it a little bit. So it was already bleeding. Yeah. And there, there was a yeah. little bit of a like, I'm waiting for the sun to go, to finish going down, at which point you're, or for the fire to burn out, at which point you're done, Severian. And Severian's like, I'm waiting for you to bleed out. Well, you're the, I'm, I would kill you right now, but it'd be easier once you've bled a little bit more. And so they're yeah. kind of at a standstill. And then, and then, yeah, good. Severian's like, I wouldn't have had to make that deal if any of you would give me some light. Yeah. And and Agia has, like, (laughs) escaped through the roof, meanwhile. (laughs) Yeah, she just left. Yeah. Which is great. And she took her knife, which is good, too. Yeah. Um, So next day, they wake up, and Severian's like, y'all need to go to Thrax, basically. Like, just start going south, and, uh, you know, see you later. He has some food. He goes to the spring where he like cleaned up yesterday. And then he basically pretends to have left. And then he like watches them from very far. Um, and in my mind, it's like this crouching figure in in a cloak that is the darkest of the blackest dark, blah, blah, blah. As this little like 
a dot in the middle of of a field. <laughs> yes. And they like lo- they're like look around and they see him. They're like, oh, he doesn't want us to look at him. Let's let's just let's pretend. entertain him. Let's yeah. just pretend that we're not going to do him. They go south, and he kind of you know stays maybe thirty minutes behind them, not very far behind them. They are attacked by zoanthrops. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We'll talk about the whole deal of that in a minute, but they're attacked by like nine dudes, nine nude dudes, and um, and Severian sees this happening and sees the old man get hit, uh-huh. and even then hesitates. And basically, he won't use the word. Mm-hmm. I don't think he uses the word, but he doesn't call himself a coward. But it's he's he's afraid. He's, he's yeah, too busy he's calling ca- the dog a coward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For not fighting the Alzabo the night before, right? And he says, you know, like I, I, you know, he was so quick to action with Alzabo because he didn't have a choice. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. he's so quick to action in these other s- situations because it's kind of reflex. He doesn't have a choice. He's brave in previous encounters because he was backed against a wall mm-hmm. and here where he could make an affirmative choice to do something. He, he chooses not to. And by the time he gets there, so the, the zoanthropes are attacking the, the woman and little Severian and um, the old man. And he's kind of charging up a hill, I think to get to them. And then the Alzabo comes out of the woods and then starts attacking the zoanthropes. By the time he gets there, everyone is dead other than um, other than little Severian. And the Alzabo has been killed by the Zoanthrops, but it is because it paused in the middle of fighting to start eating Kazdo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which also makes some implications of, well, was she wounded? Do you need to be alive to get put into the thing? Is this like a preservation? You know, there's a lot of... The mechanisms of the Alzabo being so unclear and our motivation, you know, our ability to know what the Alzabo actually wants. Is it is it a creature who is puppeting or is it people puppeting a creature? You know, this could be seen as a moment of like a family trying to save itself in the last instance, not just the fight itself, but consuming her mm-hmm. and then that got it killed. Right. And uh, little Severian, um, presumably because its father told it to, you know, cower behind the, the Alzabo, it's there. You know, little Severian's there, like, hiding there, and he's the only one left. Mm-hmm. And Severian becomes his dad. Yeah. Uh-huh. Tragedy. What's a zoanthrop? All right. Tra- tragedy. What a sad moment that happened with these people. We don't want to sit with that before we talk about race science. <laughs> Please, this is depression science and race science. They met in the middle. <sighs> Mm -hmm. All right, look, this is what Severian says. You think humans are like a a species. Time out. First of all, Gene (laughs) Wolfe's head grew 10 sizes this day because he realized (laughs) if he gave big Severian a little Severian to talk down to, he could make Severian say the most outlandish shit yet. He yeah. decided yeah, that he Severian is going yeah. to be even more Severian. Well, you would well, think by yeah. adding one more Severian to the mix, you would get double Severian, nope. but it's exponential. It's quadruple Severian. Well, so what? Ha- <laughs> it, yeah, that's right. It's like like real Oppenheimer shit. <laughs> like, oh my god! But you, uh, but but the the maneuver here, right, is that. 
Severian starts being a father, right? Mm-hmm. In the only way that he knows how, which is telling people things, because the only father Severian ever had was uh, Master Malrubius and 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 the other, you know, Master Gurlos, Master Palamon, but really Master Malrubius and the entire thing that they did was talk to each other about bullshit all day long. Mm-hmm. Like just pure <laughs> ideology coming out of one man's mouth into it into a child's ear. Severian even says that he's like, "No, I understood why they all like talked to me when I was a kid because like I was a little smart, and they could just tell me a bunch of bullshit. And I would respond to it." <laughs> and so, yes, he uses that as an opportunity to explain the zoanthropes. Severian's race science is that humans are that humanity is a culture, yeah. not a species, mm-hmm. and that you can purposefully excise yourself from that and become something else. And because you might be species wise, the same thing that humans are because you were not culturally aligned with them anymore. We got to call you something else. You're not a person. Even, he corrects little Severian yes, numerous yes, he times. Corrects Severian yeah. a couple times, right? Mm-hmm. Severian. Who were those men? I knew what he meant or whom he meant. They were not men, although they were once men and still resemble men. They were zoanthropes, a word that indicates those beasts that are of human shape. Do you understand what I am saying? Right. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of sets up, <clears throat> and it's, it's totally coherent with the rest of everything we've been given, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's coherent with the way that exultants are talked about here, right? Mm-hmm. That that they are Severian treats them and they and they might be right you know or at least some sort of combination they're bigger they are different physically they are different um quite often um but they are also treated differently right and their kind of capabilities are treated differently and the way that they interact with other people is treated differently there's a whole social caste system to it mm-hmm. exultants are not just like a name for a social class they are a name for a type of person in the world. And maybe they are part of the umbrella part of humanity. You know, I think Severian would say that the Archon of Thrax is a human. Um, but uh, it, it, this follows on from everything else we've been given in the Commonwealth that the words that are, you know, symbols make us right. The mm-hmm. words that are given to uh, a, a type of people in the world, a social class of people in the world confer a bunch of other things uh, with them. This also runs into, and this actually shows up later with the uh, the sorcerers, right? But mm-hmm. this is the stuff I was talking about last time with Gene's Lamarckism. Mm-hmm. Like, Lamarckism here is a way of, you know, which is Lamarckism, If in case you're, you're not familiar with it. Lamarckism is, is the evolutionary idea. It comes up at the same time or even maybe slightly before Darwinism. But the idea is that there are inheritable traits that emerge in the lifetime of a um, of a creature. So the example that gets used by Severian in the book is the is the hawk's nest, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, "Is that not true? Am I making that no, up?" No, he uses it's that's the okay. That's an example. Okay. Yes. Okay. So and he says, "Look, hey, guess what? Uh, hawks make nests. They're big, weird, you know, fluffy nests that they do. Um, a, a, a hawk's nest that is one single." stick is not helpful uh you know a uh so it had to have come up kind of fully formed in the mind of a hawk at some point and then other hawks saw that that was helpful and then it becomes an inheritable trait right that's the kind of lamarckism maneuver is that there is some there's a um swerve of evolution that can happen singularly across a generation Mm -hmm. and then that can be inheritable and that can perhaps be something that we might call 
in human speech culture, but in terms of evolution would not really make sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so number one, that's extremely silly. Um, like Lamarckism is, uh, while ideas of it might be helpful for thinking about evolution, like the note that the Hawks, example is like objectively wrong. And I actually did some research between now and the last episode that recorded Gene never let this go. Um, there, there's a interview in shadow of the torturer where it comes back again. Shadow of the torturer is a academic volume about Gene. I'm going to delve more into it. Uh, as we get toward the end, but it's just got a bunch of interviews with him in it. It's called Shadow of the Torturer. Yeah, they just renamed that. They just use that name again. Yeah. Yes. Weird. Okay. Okay. Shadow of the Torturer is also a. Or no, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Shadow of the New Sun. No, oh, okay. that's my mistake. <laughs> no worries. But which is which is also weird. Sorry, you said rename. Uh, because there is also I think Shadows of the New Sun, oh. which is a short story collection. Okay, okay. So I think that name has also been reused, mm-hmm. weirdly enough. But uh, anyway, so Gene never let this go. Um, and you know, uh, Severian's using it here very pointedly to talk about you know this is the kind of Commonwealth theory of the way that these this different the diversity of humanity kind of cashes out into different species of people essentially. And unfortunately this is a place where I, I, I have a deep suspicion that this is like some real gene shit. Um, uh, it, if only because it comes up consistently across his work, not just in book of the new sun, but mm-hmm. in lots of other places too. It's in the fifth head of Cerberus. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's like, I don't believe that Gene is like a human biodiversity guy. You mm-hmm. know, I don't think he's a race scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that he thinks cultural cultural influences are not just like words and signs and symbols, mm-hmm. that they like do something, that they 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 transform us. Um, and that those things are passed down, not just through signs and symbols, but through something more than that. I think like last thing on this. I think the way he gets here, having read some interviews and, and thinking through the way it fits into this volume in particular, I think this is his way of trying to make Christianity speak to evolution. Yes. Yes, mm. absolutely. One thousand percent. This is exactly right. you want to talk about go. that, Michael, like, because I think that that's why he gets here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so to uh, we can continue to think about this as we move toward the end of Book of the New Sun and into Earth and all of its disappointments. Um, but uh, like one of the big ideas that is being pitched here, I think, at this point uh, is that we can change ourselves. And that operates on all sorts of levels of meaning. That can be Severian choosing not to be a torturer, right? You can take this thing that you have said, or it has been said that you are, and you can choose to be something different. Um, But you can also uh, be a robot who takes on flesh in order to continue to exist. You can be a woman who looks one way and you can take on uh, various spells or mechanisms or technologies that will make you look another way. Uh, You could be a person who gets devoured by something from space that has the property of like uh, uh, holographizing or revivifying consciousness within itself. And then you can think of yourself as uh, continually conscious, even though you are like, you know, in in a material sense, a distinct thing from what you were. Uh, There's something going on in this book sort of generally right about uh, 
once the floodgates are open, how do you choose between the good and the bad ways of changing yourself? What is it that you produce? What are the symbols that you choose or the symbols that you build? And how do those end up uh, having a kind of warping effect on who you are and how you make yourself exist in the world? And uh, that's kind of like a, a humanist uh, sort of way of looking at it, right? An old school classical like uh, uh, Mirandola humanist, right? That's uh, one of the arguments from the uh, early modern period uh, that gives rise to humanist philosophy. I'm referring here to Pico della Mirandola. Uh, he argues that human beings, and he does this through a little fable, like a little story, uh, that uh Human beings, or what he calls man, uh, are privileged in the world by God. They get to choose because they because humans are the uh, creature that was bestowed by God uh, with reason. They can choose between two paths in life. One is to uh, make yourself more like the animal, which is to debase yourself, uh, to uh, you know give into bodily appetite or uh, excess. Uh, uh, sort of pleasure, pursuit of pleasure at kind of all other, or at the expense of all other things, that sort of thing. Or you can be mean, you can be cruel, or you can choose to follow the path of reason, uh, which is the better path, obviously, and is the path that's going to lead you to, like, God and salvation. Uh, you can choose to uh, exercise reason that will allow you to do something more with yourself than just, like, respond to your appetites. Um, and Wolf is fascinating to me precisely in, in this book in particular fascinating to me uh precisely because he seems to like operationalize this as like the metaphysics of this fictional world that people create or like people make choices right they make choices about the society that they build or whatever uh or how they live and then that has this weird like warping effect think of the um the long story we got last time about like the people in their thinking machines and how like the actual like paths of like human evolution were influenced by the ways that the thinking machines decided to interact with humanity. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Wolf is doing this fascinating thing where the material world and the spiritual world are like two halves of the same whole, uh, that the things that we make make in turn, make us like, that's the whole logic of the uh -huh. symbols. Right. Um, and so once we, if, if we accept that, um, then there's like quite, uh, uh immediately like a sort of ethical question presented. And so like with, uh, in say distinction from you, Cameron, right. Reading that El Zabo, uh, coming back for, uh, the zoanthropes, uh, you say quite rightly that we could read that uh, as maybe the family trying to preserve itself. I would say I think the logic is actually against that uh, because the Alzabo ends up representing a, a kind of mirror of what the zoanthropes are, right? If the zoanthropes mm -hmm. are humans who decided to give up their humanity to become like beasts, um, then the Alzabo. Have we explained that explicitly yet to people listening? That that's the actual mechanism? Uh, it, it is. We have not. Uh, so, to be perfectly clear, as clear as the book can be, it seems that these are people who go undergo like voluntary brain surgery that is may or may not be quite like a lobotomy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then they are literally released into the woods. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
uh, so they give up, right, the reason, right? They give up the human part. Uh, reason is also uh, in, in kind of the Christian metaphysics often asserted to be like a part of God too, right? Right. Uh, well, I mean, re- oh, you yeah. finish your thought and I'll, I want to come yeah. back in with something, an inner text we have not mentioned at all. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, reason uh, is often uh, talked about as being the image of God in in the human creature, right? Your God, your, your reason is like, God's little handhold that he gave you in order to help you uh, parse your way through the world and make your ethical judgments. Um, So these zoanthropes are people who give up reason because the burden of having to constantly face the choice of being a human creature is too much for them. It's something they don't want to engage with. And so they give it up. Uh, the, The Alzabo is like a mirror of that because it is a creature that takes over human reason uh and i think uh you know to just like spin it out entirely into like allegory or something right uh it is it is sin right it is what if there is something that could get to the core of you uh that could so wholly subvert your potential to understand the world that you don't even understand that you're working for it anymore uh that's like the darkest reading of the alzabo right that uh it's just this sort of like hungry thing that uh, uses these voices to misdirect people, but also the consciousness is still there, right? It's like made a, a mm. holographic or AI version of these people who think, right, who truly want to be with their family and will call out to them, but it's all to feed the El Zabo. Everything mm. they do is actually feeding the El Zabo at the end point. Um, mm. So I think that that's important also because Severian ends up being positioned as a uh, potentially one or the other uh when little severian realizes that big severian doesn't wear a shirt and he's like oh so are you like a zoanthrop because they don't wear clothes they don't understand clothes anymore <laughs> he's like uh uh i guess so yeah but not yeah. no but no <laughs> i used to wear a shirt uh-huh and, right and so and that's uh important because it uh one raises the question well then what are the uh if if you're a butcher of men right what is Severian to the Alzabo? And, uh-huh. right, the Alzabo, and this is where uh, uh, we can see, like, um, um, the paradox, right, of of grace. Uh, because Severian is like the Alzabo in that, yeah, he ate something, and now he's got another mind living in, in him. But he clearly does not control whatever the Thecla mind is doing. Or I don't know, you could make maybe that interpretation. But you like can make the, that. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. The way that the novel has worked thus far has positioned the Thecla mind as being a thing that uh, surprises him, gets the better of him, comes over him when he's not like he does not control her. Well, and per Agia in the last mm-hmm. chapter, whom he speaks with at night, a thing that Severian has not really told us. Yes. Um, that they are engaged in conversation. She is a second being. Right. Um, the inner text we have not said but need to is Kierkegaard. Like, this is Christian mm-hmm. existentialism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You're driven to deep despair uh, by increasing levels of uh, realization of your place in the world, of your, you know, for Kierkegaard, um, of your inability to be the self you want to be or uh, your distance from God or your distance from others or et cetera, right? Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of have a choice in Kierkegaard's um, kind of uh, philosophy as to what to do with that despair and where that despair can drive you. Uh, and I think this is as clear as can be that, like, this is wolf ex- 
positioning Severian and this change in the in the sort of schema of being a knight of faith or being a knight of um, infinite resignation in Kierkegaard, uh, and and Severian, in some ways, this starts to frame for me what the question for, and maybe I'm wrong, right? I don't know that, I don't know that Wolf read Kierkegaard, right? But it's all here. I feel extremely confident. Kierkegaard uses the dog walking on two legs versus four legs thing. Like it's in Mm -hmm. there already. You know what I mean? But the big question ends up being, um, I mean, let's assume you get over the degree of despair that Kierkegaard is like, uh, not say not the dismissive of, but like, let's, you know, there's a type of despair that can become productive for Kierkegaard, but you have to get there, right? You have to get through the other despairs that are, you know, unknowing despair. You don't even understand why you're despairing. You have to get past the despair that's like, I want to live a slightly different life, but I can't. Duh. Eventually, you get to a point where you can accept, you can resign yourself to the limits of your life. And then either you you continue to, to sort of work uh, with the ethics that would exist in your brain or in your in your life if you could pursue that thing and be a good person, or you can go further and actually keep acting as if the, have faith that in this world you will actually attain, you know, uh, let's talk about Severian. Severian in these chapters says, I want to go to space and I want to conquer time, which by the way, in the previous chapter, uh, there's another time conquering thing, right? It talks about how, um, uh, uh, either Hathor's ships or Jonas's ships or that era of ships were lost to time, which I think you can draw a connection back to later Severian saying, I will conquer time uh, in this in this reading. But let's say these are the goals that Severian has. I want to conquer time. I want to go to space. Um, he could resign himself to those things not being possible and nevertheless live a life as if those were his goals. Or he could actually commit to those being, his, accept that they're impossible and commit to them being his goals and live thusly. Uh, live in the faith that, you know, the divine divine grace and miracles could lead us to that thing and be a knight of faith. This is a very rough summary of being a knight of faith, right? Uh, but but that is broadly the way that Kierkegaard ta- talks about this. And I can't You read- experience the sickness unto death. Yes. You uh-huh. look at the moon. Uh-huh. It's very green. You decide to conquer yes. time. You want to go to space. <laughs> it's That's all in the Kierkegaard. the night of faith. Yeah. yeah. That's the night of faith. Well, like, or again, committing yourself to the life that uh, you would will uh, against the despair that comes at seeing your inability to control your life in the world, right? Mm-hmm. That it is out of your hands, in fact, but recommitting to will. And I think that that is, this is Severian saying to not do that is the greatest sin there is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is the, the most pitiful act a person can do is to, re- is to make the final choice to remove one's will. And then the race science really gets in there because it turns out when you do that, you you become an indigenous person. Right. Uh, yeah. That sure. is the way that that is represented. It could be represented a lot of different ways, importantly, but this is the way he represents it. Yeah, it right. turns out when you create a schema that is uh, boils down to sometimes people choose to be animals, you will in uh-huh. fact encounter people in the world who suddenly are no better than animals to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, th- I I think it's right. I think he stumbles into it. And I think he stumbles into it. Like, I don't think he sets out to do this to no. be like, all right. Well, I'm and there are other the indigenous peoples in this book. And like, you can make those right, counter yeah, sure. arguments. But like, when at the end of the day, the thing that you have is like, and there are some people who live in the woods <laughs> and use basic yeah. tools and weapons to survive um, is, is, you know, you're, you're stumbling into something here. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the thing that really also matters about that too is um, 
that there's this conflation, right? Because he, he plot wise, we're moving up to the waste of the world. Yeah. We're moving to the Asians and we're moving to the, um, you know, the sorcerers, the people that live in the jungles at the belt of the world, all that stuff. Right. Moving there. So Gene wants to play in that aesthetic space, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the, uh, body painting feathers, yeah. all of those things that are, part of the anthropological imagination mm-hmm. of his generation, right? Like just a hundred percent. He's reading the books. He's, he's looking the at books. the pictures. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, right? he's getting those, those, those glossy magazines with the photos right. on the front. He's reading time life. He's got yeah. national geographic. Yeah. He's looking at a boob or two on mm-hmm. there. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. that's it's just like the thing that's up. And so he, he is, is Severian moving northward to those people at the same time while delivering us his ideas about, um, you know, whatever about like the shape of humans and who gets to be it, right? Like it's a lot of things uh, running into each other at the same time, right? Like you can imagine these conversations happening in Nessus, uh-huh. right? The same conversation, uh, the same set of ideas could be uh, presented to us in the first book and it would still be just as weird in terms of like, Severian, you got some weird ideas about humanity, right? And like inheritability and what that means or whatever, and that's inflected by by Wolf's own ideas, but it would not have the same flavor of I'm being told race science here because, as you just said, the example cases are all people who are dressed like or act like a white imaginary, a white Western imaginary yeah. of the 1980s of what Indigenous people are, right? So mm-hmm. it 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 is both. Uh, the root is bad, right? And then the application is also bad. Like it, it both don't don't really work. And they, when they both happen together, it it leaves you with a well, um, okay, Gene, um, if that's what you think, uh, you know, in in your memeified form, uh, Austin, you know, Gene, he didn't have internet. So. He didn't have internet. G Wolf didn't have it. We didn't post that, did we? That was from last no, week. We didn't, we didn't no, post we didn't the young thug. G Wolf don't have internet. <laughs> You can post it for this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's you know what? I have a feeling we're gonna get to keep posting it. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so I think that all that's happening and, and that we don't let off the gas on that, right? Yeah. Um we're gonna keep yeah, you're gonna have more opportunities to talk about it, but at least it's everyone's most hated people, communists later on, <laughs> who who get the brunt of uh what happens when you uh are no longer a human than um uh, anyone else. But I think so. Zoanthropes, uh, he adopts a little Severian. I'm your dad now. They mm-hmm. start heading north mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they get kidnapped. Well, no, first they tell a story. First they tell a story. That's right. I'm sorry. My uh, you know, they're about like, frog. he's trying to explain to Severian, little Severian, about the world. Severian, little Severian, he's like, oh, did you know the stars are actually other suns? And little Severian is uh, in the, the, the sun doesn't actually go away. Earth is just looking away. And little Severian is like, if the sun's still there, then why did the stars shine h- harder? Yeah. And then they start looking at constellations together and they find the big wolf and the little wolf uh, constellations. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, that leads into little Severian saying, like, oh, can you read me a book from your brown book, from your brown book of stories? Find one with a boy who has a big friend and a twin, and there should be wolves in it. Yeah. And, and he kind of does. Yeah. He gets close. Yeah. He's pretty close. Yeah. Can I read you a thing first before we get there? Yeah. Sure. This is, I think, some of the best writing in the whole book. Uh-huh. This is this is when Severian's like, when you don't have a dad, you get a dad. I'm your dad now. <laughs> 
You know, he says that. I'm your father, for now at least. When someone's father dies, he must have a new one if he's as young as you are. I'm the man. (laughs) If you don't have a dad, you get a dad. But this is the part that I like really hit me even reading it. You know, maybe it's because I'm ill. But, you know, I was like, damn. He's talking about little Severian. He nodded, lost in thought, and quite suddenly I recalled how I had dreamed only two nights before of a world in which all the people knew themselves bound by ties of blood, being all descended from the same pair of colonists. I, who did not know my own mother's name or my father's, might well have related to this child whose name was my own, or for that matter, to anyone I met. The world of which I had dreamed had been, for me, the bed on which I had lain. I wish I could describe how serious we were there by the laughing stream, how solemn and clean he looked with his wet face and the droplets sparkling in the lashes of his wide eyes. That's like a big, heavy-hitting moment for Severian. Yeah. Yeah. To be like, I could be, anyone could be my family. Well, when John Cusack lifts up the baby in Gross Point Blank. It's just like that. Yeah. Well, and also the way that that ends with, like, it is, um... It is not, I guess, it, it, it's not the first time that Severian has said that something is impossible to describe, but Severian's typical mode is being like, here, let me describe for you the thing that I remember perfectly in mm-hmm. stunning detail, because <laughs> yeah. that is my entire deal. So that choice to uh, say that I cannot really describe for you how that moment felt is, it, I think it hits really hard. Mm-hmm. Damn, all it took was Severian to have a little Severian a little mm-hmm. copy of himself to understand empathy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that little Severian calls him big Severian. It's so mm-hmm. good. That's good stuff. It is. But anyway, we're talking about the tale of the boy called Frog. Okay, really quick. I do have a note here at the, the yeah. end of that write-up of that bit you just read. Mm-hmm. I did write, is it you? Did you raise yourself? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm mm-hmm. on the lookout. I mean, we know how what happened. I mean, maybe I don't know what happened to this little kid. Maybe this is, this little kid is Severian. And the thing that happens at the end is not instant destruction, but some sort of time travel with ash residue. Uh, but I, at this point I am on the lookout. Severian says he wants to conquer time, which is not quite yet, but later, uh, I was like, Okay, where, what am I, who, where is the time going to twist and turn in front of me? Could this child whose mother's name is Cass also be our Severian somehow? <laughs> or is this just the world working the way the world works, uh, especially in fiction with, um, you know, a great deal of coincidence that is that is thematically uh, and narratively charged? Who could say? But yeah, I mean, I think we're supposed to have that question. Yeah, I, you have to, right? If if someone named Severian dies and you vow to conquer time, and your name's Severian, Come I on. think you're supposed yeah. to be like, huh? If there's one thing that I think Gene Wolfe knows about his audience is that they've read some science fiction before, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right? Right. Well, again, so, part yeah. of part of my my instinct here was also, huh? It's weird that Severian didn't want to have sex with that woman. Maybe that's mm-hmm. his mother, uh, and Gene is trying <laughs> yeah. to dodge something here. Um, yeah, maybe. So, anyway, who could say? I have not read ahead. I have no fucking idea. Yeah, we'll find out. Tell me about the boy called Frog. Michael can tell us about this. What if I Mowgli- like that we always do this, Cameron. <laughs> Every time we come to one of these little stories inside, I mean, that's not true because we just told the fetching one ourselves. No big deal. Maybe, maybe yeah, it's in the middle. That's not its own chapter. That's not its own chapter. Right. But if you give me a little thing that's like chapter 19, the tale of the boy called Frog, part one, early summer and his son, 
That's yeah. a Michael handoff to me. You know, you ever seen uh, the television show you should not watch because the AMPTP will not come to a deal uh, with the writers. Maybe and ever, by the way, the way things are going. <laughs> That's true. But at some point we will. I won't have to say this anymore, but uh, you shouldn't watch it right now. But there's a television program called It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And there's a uh, a bit on there called Charlie Work, right? Uh-huh. which is just like things no one wants to do, but that Charlie's real good at. Well, this is Michael work. Okay. okay. Like when, when there's like an al- a deeply allegorical story that requires you to like know a whole bunch of shit about the world that I just don't know. <laughs> and I'm reading it thinking I'm like the dumbest bastard alive because I'm like, this has got to be some fucking Greek myth that I just don't know anything about. I just think in my head at that moment, Michael will do this. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have to know about this. Like, it, like it's a freeing thing to know uh-huh. that Michael is in fact an expert on many things I do not care about and that he can coherently explain it to me the next day. You know, that's good. That's freeing. Uh-huh. No pressure though, Michael. Yeah, no pressure. Uh, no, a huge amount of pressure every time. Yeah. You be- Don't mess it up because I can't help. What if Mowgli from the Jungle Book was uh, Moses and also Romulus of Romulus and Remus and then... He did all that stuff. And also, he was descended from space aliens. See, I would never do that. I would never get there. (laughs) (laughs) I would never say those words. Okay, how close did you get to there? That's that's pretty close. I got the Romulus. I I mean, I can kind of tell you what happened. I got the Moses part. I didn't Mm -hmm. really get the Jungle Book part. The wolf, I mean, I know that this is involved yeah, in the Jungle Book, but I don't that's really how know how the Jungle why. Book starts is the, the wolves adopt Mowgli and Shere Khan wants to eat Mowgli, right? Yeah. Is that right? The man cub, yeah. The man cub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Except in our case, it's a Smilodon or whatever. Smilodon, a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah, oh, a Smilodon's a tiger, so it is a tiger. I was confusing it with, a with the what's the dinosaur with the big spine on the back? Uh, this is a Spinosaurus. <laughs> I may, no, I think that's maybe one they made up for one of the Jurassic Park movies. You're talking about the T Rex? No, I oh, am talking about a Spinosaurus. Begins with a D. Or yeah, 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 yeah like Demaclodon. Yeah, I made that sure. up. That's not real. Anyway, spine back dinosaur. It's a Dimetrodon. Dimetrodon is what I've been imagining this this yeah. saber tooth tiger as this whole time, which I think <laughs> is sicker to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Imagine this thing's head poking into the wolf like burrow, and being like, "Is there a fucking guy in here I can eat?" <laughs> 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 That's what he sounds like to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. not a wolf. I love that there's a. I love there's all these like fucking talking animals and shit in here. But they're people and then at one too. Point, one of the wolves adjusts her sword. Yeah, it's yeah. blithe from Elden Ring. Like it's yeah. straight up animal people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's rude rules. Yeah. Also, the most Dark Souls stuff in the world is actually that the like the wolf dad has a big broadsword and the wolf mom has two curved knives ready to yeah. go. <laughs> or no, sorry, it is it is the Smilodon has the two curved knives. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. You know right. who they are because their weapons right. are different. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, also that the that the resolution of the thing of all of this stuff is here's a bunch of money. Uh-huh. <laughs> like let's solve it with money. <laughs> yes. Yep. You can go like fight the boss and like do all that stuff, or you could pay ten thousand souls. Just get it. <laughs> just get the yeah. Just uh, adopt. Get the, the key. Yeah, that's it. Walk through the door. Uh, the law says that a cub's life may be bought. That's the law. I, he ransomed an empire. There it is. 
any 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 major stuff you pulled out of here, Michael, that that is interesting to you other than because it really is just like a very interesting story of things that happen. But I'm sure that there are like resonant ideas with the series here, presumably that I don't know about. Uh, I mean, so uh, some things to think about uh, the the kind of like fantasy Romulus and Remus by way of uh, uh the jungle Fish book that we get here. Yeah. Fish and frog. These two boys, uh, they are descended from a, what, what was his name? Not, not summer wind, spring, spring wind, spring wind. Right. Uh, uh, they are descended from a guy who is like in a Greek myth, he would be a demigod, right? Yes. He, he has his like, mother is mm-hmm. a God. This, this is some of the cool. I'm going to read it. This is some of the coolest shit. Okay. Now, it happened that the chances of war often brought spring wind to earth, and there came in, and there he came to know of two brothers who were kings. Of these, the elder had several sons, but the younger only a single daughter, a girl named Bird of the Wood. When this girl became a woman, her father was slain, and her uncle, in order that she might never breed sons who would claim their grandfather's kingdom, entered her name on the role of the virgin priestesses. Pellerines, maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> This displeased Spring Wind because the princess was beautiful and her father had been his friend. One day it happened that he had gone alone into the world of Earth, and there he saw Bird of the Woods sleeping beside a string and woke her with his kisses. Like, I love this space fantasy shit where he's like a prince among the stars, and sometimes you lead, you know, an army to Earth and fight war, and sometimes you go alone to Earth and you're flyer. Right. And you like go and meet a a princess by a stream. Right. It's Mm -hmm. like this this mythological compaction of time and space that we know is like space alien. Yeah. Right. That's so cool. The thing it reminds me the most of a lot of this early stuff, which does not hit the space alien stuff so much, but does hit the sort of folkloric part is Stafford's Greg Stafford's Glorantha. Uh, stuff. Mm. Oh um, yeah, Glorantha's all cool. the like hero quest stuff that happened. I mean, hero quest itself, but also in like King of Dragon Pass or Six Ages, the way that like you can go on these hero quests and and go through the myths that are that appear like this. And obviously, those are pulled from real life myths. I know Stafford was deeply uh, influenced by you know world mythology and stuff, right? Um, uh, but uh, you, this is this is not Tolkien esque fantasy, right? This is a mm-hmm. different type of. Um, yeah. narrative, uh, folkloric, you know, uh, uh, you know, genre space. Yeah. Right. It's the pre Tolkien yes. fantasy. Yes, <laughs> right. exactly. Right. So there's this, uh, woman named end of summer. Who's like some sort of like alien queen, uh, who gives birth to, uh, uh, spring wind. Was that, was his, is that his name? Spring They're both wind. seasons. Yeah. 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 Uh, she gets or, a, her name's early summer, early summer. Yeah. Yeah, early, early summer. summer. Yeah. Okay. So uh she gets uh uh miraculously pregnant. Huh. Mm-hmm. Remind you of anything? Okay, uh, wait a second. She does not get miraculously. She fucks a rose. <laughs> she goes out and this is real, right? She goes yeah. out and finds yeah. a This thornless, is real. It happens every day. It happens every day. She found a, a plant. Uh, that was redder than any rose and more sweetly perfumed, and its strong stalk was thornless and smooth as ivory, and mm-hmm. she brought it to a secluded spot and reclined there contemplating it, mm-hmm. and she's, it she's grew to seem to her no dude. blossom at all, but such a lover as she had longed dude, for. Dude, Powerful and yet as contemplating the rose. As a kiss. Certain of the juices no. of the plant entered her no, and no, she conceived. No. And, uh, no. I wouldn't say it was spontaneous. <laughs> I bet it took a little time. 
The uh, hey, where else are roses? Uh, I don't know. Where else are roses? I don't know. Where else have roses showed up? Where else have roses showed up? It's a real, real pop quiz. This is a real I pop mean, quiz. I know, but I don't want to. Like, I don't know. Well, I feel like that's I showed up. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Where else have roses yeah. shown up? Think in this book this is... or in the world? Like that seal song from Batman Returns? Yeah. No. Like Kiss from uh, a Rose in, on the in Grave? Book of the New Sun. I should, you're right. I should. You got to set your parameters. In Book of the New Sun, mm-hmm. where have roses appeared before? I don't remember. Very far, a long time ago. Severian's youth. Severian's youth. What did he like to rose. do when he was a little kid? What was the thing he loved to do the most? Was go out into the mausoleum. Yep. What's on the mausoleum? A kiss on the rose from the grave. <laughs> you still got seal going on there. I, I can't undo it. Once seal starts going, that's kind of it. Uh, I yeah, don't remember where the rose is in the in the graveyard. No, but you're right. There's a. Uh, it, it's the mausoleum, right? Right. right so right, right. on the mausoleum, there's the face. There's a spaceship. There's a rose. Mm-hmm. It's not grave. It's not grave. It's gray. Gray? It's, I'm losing my mind. Baby, I compare you to a kiss from a rose on the gray. What? What? What the fuck are you That's talking about? That's not that fucking song. <laughs> That's Who not that. Okay, here's what the genius. thing. What genius.com bullshit is this? <laughs> yeah, this is where it is. The first lyric it. is, there used to be a graying tower alone on the sea, and you became yeah. the light on the dark side of me. And so yeah. the gray is the gray tower. No. What? Ooh, the more I get of you, the stranger it feels, yeah. Yeah. And okay. now that your rose is in bloom, a light hits the gloom on the gray. The Great Tower. Hmm. Isn't there a grave in this video, though? (sighs) Also, it's from Batman Forever, not Batman Returns. Apologies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not from Batman. It'd have to be Christmas-themed. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Danny DeVito would sing it. Uh, well, that's uh, this is Sorry real too real <laughs> You do, so. yeah, I know. Me too. Uh, yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> roses. Well, no, we gotta go back to the thing that I cared about, What's which the, is that there's rose on the mausoleum. What's going on there? Well, there, there's a there's a rose on the mausoleum. Mm, right. Interesting. So that matters. Roses are a symbol in Catholicism. That's true. Yeah, that's they, also true. Uh, it, very often associated with uh, various saints, but in particular, uh, uh, Mary. Um, like sure. roses are part of Marian iconography, and so we yeah. have this woman who gets a, a a very sexy rose. I'll I'll let it happen as you say it happens, mm. Austin. Uh, this woman <laughs> who becomes pregnant by a very sexy rose uh, gives birth to a, a wonderful soldier boy who's actually he he was supposed to be a gardener, right? She she can won- I say one more thing about the rose? I'm sorry. Okay. Can I say okay. one more okay. thing about okay. the mausoleum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's part of Severian's own creation myth. Right. right. He imagines right. Mm-hmm. That, that that he is related to that. So Severian has his, his own fictional creation story that is about, you know, that the, the rose is intimately a part of. And this is a creation myth that a rose is intimately a part. I just want to make that. I want to make the subtext text here. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it. he's meant to be a gardener, but he ends up being a, a warrior. Yep. Yep. And hmm. then, he, then he heads off a to butcher Earth. butcher of men. Has some kids. 
and the soldiers uh, he led against the king's enemies were drilled until they seemed men of bronze quickened with fire and and their loyalty to him was such that they would have followed him to the world of shadows the realm farthest from the sun then men said it was the spring wind that threw down towers and the spring wind that capsized ships though that was not what early summer had intended there's yeah. also some Guin in here you mm-hmm. know there's some the world of shadow stuff really feels mm-hmm. in that space it's mm-hmm. really a direct one-to-one, but you know what I'm saying. I think it's cool as shit that his name, that the spring wind is like blowing planets apart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, spring wind's coming. I mean, that's the Glorantha part to me, right? That's yeah. the part where it's like Humacht, god of death, is just a guy who has a sword. You know what I mean? And like yeah. or, or, or Naldo, the the cow mother, you know, or whatever, is like oh, is yeah. the idea of fertility, you know, classic god stuff. Yeah. I do like also uh, having Michael do these so that we can infinitely interrupt him as he's just trying to tell us. Well, this is the truth about any of this is that little Severian would be doing this nonstop (laughs) as big Severian is telling the story. Mm -hmm. Who are the king's enemies? Or when you say they're men of bronze, do you mean that they are made of metal like those statues we see later who do follow the sun with their eyes? (laughs) Uh, Little Severian would not live to see the the statues turn, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he read ahead in the book. It's fine. Okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah. All right, Michael, I'll let you continue uninterrupted. I mean, just the point to make is uh, we are getting one uh, echoing of like Greek, Greek mythology of like, you know, demigods, uh, uh, people with miraculous births. Uh, but as always, Wolf is this kind of comparative uh, mythologist. So he is interested in lining up uh, Greek mythology and demigods or things like that, along with uh, uh, a vaguely implicatively Christian version of this, because we have this miraculous uh, sexy rose. Uh, so that's something to think about, right? The the, the comparative mythology that Wolf often does. Uh, but ultimately, also, the payout of this is that we get a uh, foundation of an empire where two things happen. Uh, One, something tragic happens. A brother gets killed, and then he is laid in the foundations of a wall. Um, But then also the empire that comes from this tragedy uh, is, one, very successful, and two, traces its lineage to the stars, either like in a space alien sense or in a divinity sense. So uh, uh, again, as often happens in these books, uh, the... uh, old, old, old anthropological, right, brain way of thinking about this, that uh, uh, many early civilizations uh, uh, traced their histories back to, here's a way to put this, secularism does not exist in in a certain point of the remote past, right? Every civilization has at its center some sort of uh, theological kernel uh, or uh, founding religion, right? A, a uh, uh, the gods used to be rulers, right? Yeah. The 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 best ruler, the first ruler, ascended to godhood, and now like uh, uh, the empire marches on uh, in in that kind of way. Um, there is no uh, trying to think how to say this. I've been interrupted so many times that I don't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> I hope you're happy. I can interrupt you again. Yeah. Okay. Uh, basically the, the point that there is no secularism is, is really the important one, right? That, uh, right. uh, that divinity and statehood, uh, overlap in some way or, or, and statehood is not even the right term, right? Divinity and civilization 
uh, overlap in some way. But that doesn't mean that it's like perfectly good fun times in civilization or divinity, right? It's also fraught with tragedy. It's uh, fought with uh, or fraught with uh, uh, threats and, and things of that nature. Right. Um, well, and then also, you know, even just the, this choice of the Romulus and Remus stuff or the Moses stuff or the uh, there's like the the Peach Boy stuff in in honestly Japan, Momotaro um, or, you know, um, uh, Princess Kaguya also the, the bamboo cutter story. Like there's a lot of the thing you're there is a, a an almost Campbellian thing happening here with Wolf where it's like, yes, it all comes down to. These these universal stories of divinity intersecting with reality, you know, look at these repeated themes, look at these repeated um, movements in in myth across the world, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's or that's part of the collapsing effect. Right. If what he's doing is blending all of these stories together, one of the effects of it, whether it's a side effect or an intended effect, is to try to is to highlight some sort of similarity in founding myth, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and here, obviously, again, at the very end of it, we we wrap back around to the American, <laughs> the myth of, of, of America's founding with with Squanto. Right. Uh, yeah, the, the collapse at the very end of this, uh-huh. which I'd forgotten, mm-hmm. like Same. totally had forgotten. Uh, the collapse here of uh, the, the founding myth of America, right, of, of mm-hmm. the, you know, essentially the pilgrims, with, um, uh, what do you, um, Cain and Abel, right? Because it's Cain uh, and Abel at the and, end. And, and fish and. Yeah, frog uh, and fish are Cain and Abel, right? Like. Yeah, a little bit. And then I also, also Romulus and Remus. Right, yes. Yeah. Right, it, like it's all three of them happening at one time, right? But I'm thinking here specifically about, you know, the, the kind of strong division uh, between the two different kind of masteries of mm-hmm. the world um and one doesn't kill the other directly but one's troops kill the other right which is kind of romulus and remus too uh although i don't think i don't think they kill each other right don't they but they are buried under the wall i truly don't know in anything rome? about romulus and remus i, I know that yeah, they were... they're buried in the foundations of rome is that not true i uh, mean they romulus does rome. kill remus oh romulus well, there does you kill. go okay yeah okay I just couldn't remember. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't um, do that. If I had a brother who I was raised by wolves and miraculously became the founders of a great empire, I would just let him rock. Yeah. Well, no, I would bury him uh, because you're supposed to bury rock, a, rock, a, a, rock, not yeah. rot. I would not kill <laughs> oh, my oh. brother. <laughs> no, I this. would bury him if he died in some sort Got of it. tragic. I would just uh, let him chill. What if you your know? uncle told you you couldn't bury him? and You had to leave him on the field of battle. Huh. Is my uncle a wolf or a god? He's the uh, kind of a, a key leader in Athens, the city state. Hmm. And you're like a kind of a frail young girl. You know, I would I would be compelled to make mm-hmm. some sort of decision uh, that I thought was just, even if it were perhaps uh, uh, risky and mm-hmm. might put me into a, a rough rough position. You know, your ass just got jeans. No. Ooh, I took a story that's like not the one we're talking about. No, and I but you right blended in. But it I in. Love but I love the idea that the fit, right? Because like uh, the whole Squanto had a plant corn thing, right? Uh-huh. Is that you? You put you put a fish underneath the, the corn right. and the corn will grow, which is like still a thing people do. You know, it's it is it is efficient. Um, but it's so funny to me that the whole pun? thing. Did you yes, really? It's a just... fish, it, it it narrows down to an agricultural fish pun. 
fun. That's yep. funny to me. <laughs> I mean, it's like extremely goofball. Yeah. And also why? I mean, I actually think this is this is a, a comic relief, right? This is, we went mm, through it sure. with uh, yeah. uh, the Alzabo and all the hard times with little Severian, right? I think this story is here precisely so because it ends so abruptly. It was just like, and by the way, that guy was named Squanto. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like that is truly how that story ends. If you're not reading along. Yeah, you it, know. <laughs> It's got the format of like, and he, he it could have been like, and that man was Albert right. Einstein. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, I think it's like about uh, opening the steam valve a little bit after the hard times. I, I don't know why this is the case, but I'm, I've now heard this whole story in the voice of uh, a Hideo Kojima side character over codec call. And at the <laughs> end, and snake, would you believe that that the name of that character was Squanto? Or Savage, or the Naked One. <laughs> it's right there. Huh. Interesting uh-huh. story. Wow. I'd heard about Squanto. No, no, it would be this. Squanto? <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. Would you like to save your game, Snake? <laughs> Severian, would you like to- Hideo Kojima's Book of the New Sun, the video <laughs> game, is what he's been working oh, on, actually. Can you imagine? Okay. Death Stranding can, can, can is can really you a, just you know, preparing. Like, yeah, please give, give it to me. Let me, let me give you the flipped, uh, you know, Japanese video game masters, right? Mm-hmm. As youths, uh, Miyazaki only reads airport fiction. Right. And, and, and watches and, 80s action movies. Right. And so makes what Kojima makes. Yeah. So it's like all like horrifyingly afraid of like uh, uh, women, but loves really big women for still somehow, <laughs> right? Planes, it, it, but it's all like planes, trains, and automobiles, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in nuclear war shit. Mm-hmm. Hideo Kojima reads this as a youth. Yeah. And they flip. <laughs> And, and he's wearing he's wearing a Fulgen cloak all the time. He's selling, you know, it's 2023. Yes. You can buy Hideo Kojima's branded, you know, $17,000 Fulgen <laughs> <Yeah>. cloak <laughs> that that like will electrocute you if you wear a shirt with it. The idea of do you know how in Metal Gear Solid uh it'll you'll get into the 50 minute cutscene and then like it cuts away to live FMV footage of <laughs> nuclear yes. disarmament or whatever? Yeah. That, but it's the tale of the boy called Frog, <laughs> or it's Genesis and eschatology, or eschatology and Genesis. <laughs> Incredible. Oh, here we go. Another cutscene. Yeah. <laughs> but also, Dr. Uh, uh, Talos and, and uh, Baldander's basically already bosses from a Metal Gear game. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big mm-hmm. guy, little guy. Oh, a hundred percent. The uh, <laughs> it would be good. It would be great, actually. I'm I'm now thinking about this other world we lived in, and it might be better. The next chapter about the sorcerers is a hundred percent a Hideo Kojima arc already. Yeah, so let's talk oh, about is. these sorcerers. Yeah, yeah. They're just walking along, bebopping, mm-hmm. and they get kidnapped by sorcerers. These sorcerers are are naked dudes who paint their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, have some like, uh, uh, feathers and stuff like that. And they have claws mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again, and human they and get captured by them like, like big sharp claws. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they get captured by them right after seeing a totem that's like on the, gr- uh, like, uh, on the path that is explicitly a totem banishing the new sun. Right. Mm-hmm. 
which we first had the idea of someone trying to stop that back in eschatology in Genesis, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, just because we didn't say it outright, but like Meshian and Meshine or whatever come up as the names of the the parents of, of humankind in the tale of the boy called Frog. Those are what are mm-hmm. used, not Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Even though those are, you know, there's like similar, there's overlap, you know, in that, which we already talked about, I think. But. Yeah, let me tell you, I think it's, uh, I, you know, I have it right here, so I could probably tell you, but there is an actual explanation of that in Castle of the Otter of like where those names come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I could probably from tell you. Zoroastrianism. Uh, yeah, so yeah. It's Persian, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. He calls yeah. them the Persian Adam and Eve. Yeah. 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 You had it. You had it off the dome. But yeah, he uh, basically a huge chunk of the names in that thing come from different names for kind of uh, first figures. Again, this sort of universalist, the myths reduced down into blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I've talked about before. It's the Glorantha stuff you're talking about, too. Right. The like I get a sense reading interviews with Gene Wolfe that he really does look at is what I was talking about in terms of his belief in a historical Jesus in last episode. Right. right? Like Mm -hmm. He does seem to have a kind of going belief that the events that happened around the birth of Christianity speak to some truth. They are just warped by time and, and transformation. And I think he has a general, I don't know. He doesn't speak about it directly with other ones, so it's hard for me. This is purely an inference, but I think he probably treats most, most mythology the same way, right? Like yeah. For him, the Glorantha impulse is, that's the story of humanity. It's very surreal to be reading this at the same time as like doing research on ancient aliens and things like that, because that is also a dominant way that they approach that like that belief system, for lack of a better word, right? right? Like ancient alien folks, precursor species folks, that's what they think too, right? Like the flood for them, well, that is a galactic uh, trauma event that happened to the planet or, um, mm-hmm. you know. The forerunners uh, built the halos to fight it, yeah. Basically, yeah, that's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The second video in that ad freak uh, YouTube account was the, <laughs> like, I believe finish the fight Halo 3 ad. <laughs> so I've been thinking about Halo this whole time. So, well, look, the new son's got to finish the fight. Yeah, true. It's true. But Someone's okay, so they're, they, in, they interpret this symbol and it's like, hey, man, it seems like some people might not want the new son to come. Okay, anyway, then these guys show up. They kidnap them. They they pre-kidnap little Severian. Like, as soon as Severian looks around, he can't even find him. They take big Severian. They go put him in a hole in the ground, and they interrogate him. They're in mm-hmm. the in the rainforest, and the rainforest is entirely made of, like, tree hutches and tunnels down into the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Giant, fort, like, forest fortress. Where mm-hmm. like the tr- the tree trunks are thick enough that you could build buildings in there. At you first, know, I was a like a little bit of a Lothlorien. Yeah, well, yeah. and I was like, didn't we do this with Vodalus's stuff? But I guess not really. Vodalus just kind of lived in the forest. Yeah, right. Big like on the whole, like what's going on here seems more like uh, Ewoks than Ewoks. anything we've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if Ewoks, Ewoks could do stuff. magic? You know, <laughs> what if Ewoks uh, denied the light of Christ? Yeah, <laughs> they would never. <laughs> The Ewoks would convert to Christianity immediately. <laughs> Instantly. They Instantly. already know Jesus in the tree, like Paul said, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> they, 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 you know, they're, uh, the Ewoks have the temple to the unknown God. They know there's something. Exactly. 
<laughs> um, I, actually, of note here, a thing that I'm, I'm curious about is this is our yeah. fifth prison, right? Yet again, Severian yeah. has found his way into a prison he doesn't quite understand. Um, and in some, he doesn't call it out, right? But in some ways, it's closer to the home prisons that he's familiar with because it's an individual cell that he's put in, right? Um, but in other ways, there are weird like traps that will make him bleed if he moves the wrong way or tries to escape. I thought that was interesting. I'm, I'm yeah, keeping track. Like sharpened bamboo. Yes. You know, very Vietnam War uh, yeah. imagery. I was right? going to say, I was yes. getting a lot of POW stuff out For of this. For sure. Yeah, right. He's playing in that kind of Sharpened thing. bamboo sticks. Yeah. He also talks to Thecla. Yeah, where does there. he talk to Thecla here? It's in the um, prison after the, the guy comes in to be like, um... Uh, hey, does it, is it after he talks to the person? I thought it was. Maybe it's before. It's it's before because I think that's what uh, what it is. He's You're also right. it's totally dark, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's so, completely black. And so he starts getting interrogated by a voice that seems to be coming from nowhere. But uh, Severian is a good little rationalist, right? Severian often thinks like an engineer, so he gets thrust into this dark little room. And one of the first things he does is he like takes measurements of it. He like inspects the <laughs> yes. corners. He just does all this stuff, right? How is this space put together? Uh, and so uh, when he hears someone interrogating him, talking to him, he immediately knows. Okay, there's like some point of like communication with somewhere else. There's got to be some sort of connection. Uh, and that gets us to the end of this little sequence. But before then to pass the time, uh, just sitting in the dark, he makes use of his incredible, perfect memory. And he remembers a whole bunch of stuff from his childhood uh, in, in the Citadel, looking at the necropolis, blah, 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 blah. And that eventually moves to sitting with Thecla in her cell and talking with her. Yeah, and I really do wonder about this. Is this a memory or is this a conversation with Thecla? Mm -hmm. It's really, I, he says, it, it's in a set of things. He's talking about, like you said, he's like, uh, I, I, I for a time, I watched the animals in the necropolis beyond the citadel walls. I was, he's, he's basically he's like, I'm going to free myself in spirit from this dark place by going into my memories. And he lists like five memories and then, including now Triskel lay dead as it seemed on the refuse behind the bare tower. I went to him, saw him shudder and lift his head to lick my hand. I sat with Thecla in her narrow cell where we read aloud to each other and stopped to argue what we had read. And then they have this debate about who could re who could revivify the increate, who could bring God back. Um, is God dead or did God ever exist? And this fits the model of the type of conversations we know that they were having, you know, mm -hmm. uh, including his incredibly bad Riz where he's like, <laughs> I put my hand upon her. Th uh, uh, sorry. She's like, I haven't seen you blush like this. And since I took off my gown for the first time, I laid your hands on my breasts and you went red as a berry. Do you remember? Tell someone to tell somebody to fill it. Where is the young atheist now? This is referencing a thing that was said moments before. And he says, I put my hand upon her thigh confused as he was then by the presence of divinity. Shut the fuck up, Severian. <laughs> Get out of here. You fucking nerd. You little nerd. <laughs> you little torturing kid. Yeah, yeah. you're going to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> God. Come on. Uh, uh, such dreams as you lie behind beyond my power. Get like, out of here. This could just be a memory, right? Yes. Like, I, and, and it's told us as a memory. Like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not asserting a thing. But I did get a sense reading it this time where I was like, oh, well, I wonder, like, uh, like she's in there, right? Why yeah. would you not like, if you're having a conversation, why would it not be the converse, you know, a conversation held, especially because it's like not a thing. We know all this other stuff before, right? Mm -hmm. 
maybe not. Maybe not the fox in the in the thing. So I don't know. Anyway, it's just an, an idea to entertain. Uh, I mean, an, an important thing to note here is the conversation they are having is uh, the clock of the universe winding down, essentially. Yeah. Right. The, the right. increate is dead and the world, the person who created the clockwork mechanism of the cosmos uh, is dead. And now it's all winding down. And so having someone fill it again uh, is uh, uh, he says so she says the clock is winding down and he's like, well, couldn't couldn't the increate just have someone fill it again? And she says uh, she makes that into like a, you know, a little lewd joke like, oh, have someone fill it again, a huh, little boy. Uh, and uh, what is important there is filling a clock. What they're talking about a water clock, a water again. clock, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's the only one they got. Right. Which is what we saw in uh, eschatology and Genesis. That was the last right, time we saw a water right. clock. And that was uh, a thing that was in the Autarch's house and um, Nod destroyed it in his rage. So we right. have a water clock that could be destroyed or we have a water clock that is running down but could be refilled. Right. So just some, some you know, thematic imagery there to, to pull out and think about. Because mm -hmm. uh, Severian isn't making these connections, because as you say, Cameron, like it, it seems like water clocks is what they have here. Um, like that's the normal type of clock. Uh, but notably, this is where we get uh, that most explicitly. And yeah, he's like talking to her and the the uh, memory, if that's what it is, it doesn't end really. <sighs> it just like becomes, like he sort of like fades out of it into uh, the new or not the new, but uh, uh, the actual situation that he's in, because it's like they're mm -hmm. sitting in the cell talking and then he realizes like something has moved outside of the cell uh -huh. and then the lights go down and he's not in the memory anymore. And now he's back in his own cell alone being interrogated. Right. And and again, there is this sense that like someone overheard the conversation and it's like, is that the conversation? Is it just Severian doing the voice twice, doing his voice and then Thecla's voice, is Thecla in the cell with him the way that the little girl saw it? And, and we talked about this last time with the, like, sometimes in darkness you can see something more clearly because mm -hmm. you don't have the detail to to show that it isn't. I mean, and, and um, uh, you know, he's – he later on in this conversation with the guy who came down to interrogate him – um, Severian's like, I've not attempted to free myself yet. I've already been free. And the sorcerer guy is like, you weren't free. You just brought that woman here in spirit. So <laughs> certainly mm -hmm. hurt her at least, you know? Yeah. Now it seemed the remembered Thecla must have spoken yes. through my mouth. Yes. Right. And it's like, well, is it the remembered Thecla or is it the Thecla who is literally in your body? Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. A, a fun. I, I, I like that Thecla is still held out as this like ambiguous in the same with the Alzebo was too, uh -huh. right? You know, and I think Michael, you have a much more kind of determined reading of that than I do, but like the, that because the ambiguities of what the hell is up with the Alzebo go right into what we have here, right? Of like, we still really do not know what is happening uh -huh. with mm -hmm. Thecla in there, uh, which is cool. I think. Yeah. Same. I wrote this uh, for 109. I don't know why I wrote this, but I, I said that she's Disco Elysium, doing some Disco Elysium with his. Oh, I do know. Yeah. Because, like, uh, Severian doesn't know anything about, uh, like, um, magic, like folk magic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and Thecla knows all about it. So he's able to, like, consult Thecla yeah. as, like, encyclopedia. 
uh-huh. uh, knowledge of, of magic in there. I thought that I think that's pretty great. That's why I wrote that. The sound of the skill check and the skill easium playing at Severian tries to learn something. Very fun. Yeah. Yeah. He gets a one. Yeah. And, and Thecla just lies to him. Yeah. <laughs> Makes shit up. He believes it. He's goofball. Um, they basically say, hey, we'll give you your kid. We, we will not give you your kid back. Uh, and then they leave. He, using all his measurements that you were talking about, he determines, using uh, using his skill check of knowledge colon prison, uh-huh. uh, he basically determines that there's a, um, like an air hatch that the person had been poking their head out of, like a, like a duct mm-hmm. that the person had basically just been poking their head out of into the cell without having to enter the cell. And so he uh, goes through that, and he and he starts feeling a bunch of slime on the ground, and that's mm-hmm. not good. And he's like mm-hmm. squiggling through these ducts. He eventually comes out, and it's so great because these like sorcerers are all hanging out with one another, and they've got little Severian, and they're like showing off Terminus Est, and they like go to get him out of his little hatch, and they open up the hatch, and he's not down there. And then he comes out of the brush, and he's like, "I'm over here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not there. I said, I am here." <laughs> there was an inrush of many breaths, and though I knew I might soon die, it was good to hear. That's so funny to me. Gotcha. I'm not over there. I'm here. Because he like gets uh-huh. out before they've gathered and just hides in the shadow in his cloak. So he yeah. can just be like, okay, I'm here. And he steps out into the firelight like Batman, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well and, and this becomes his whole. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. I was So this is like part of the meat of this little sequence is him understanding uh in a very incisive and quick way for Severian. Uh, and I mean, I guess what is what is very Severian like about it is that he's very certain what he thinks. And then he actually, by the end of this uh, sequence, is like, maybe that's not actually everything. Yes. But uh, he understands these magicians as essentially uh, tricksters. And I don't mean that in like the fun way. Right. Like it's all <laughs> it's all smoke and mirrors like they right. are. He says in the prison, he says. Uh, I'd always believed all self-proclaimed wonder workers to be frauds. Now, something in my interrogator's voice suggested that even as they attempt to deceive others, so they might deceive themselves, mm-hmm. which is to say, oh, no, they they buy the hype. They're yeah. fake, but they believe that they're going to do magic on us. And so I have to like, I got to play their game. Mm-hmm. I got to talk back in the, in the, you know, so, so when, when, you know, they, they confront him on this. He's like, ah, you, you're only, uh, you know, if you've walked far in the way, you know, you have less authority over me than the ignorant may believe. Uh, and you know, I, you stole my son, who is also the son of the beast who speaks. And uh, and you must know by this time, uh, you must know that by now if you've questioned him. Uh, and it's it's like he's playing the part of the the sorcerers in the woods who who worship demons or whatever, but who actually have no power. Right. Mm-hmm. Or and this, do they? <laughs> right. And this is like a so the, the way that Severian at first approaches this is like a classic way. If you look at medieval and early modern accounts of witchcraft and sorcery, specifically from people who are skeptics of that stuff, mm. this is how they explain it. Right. And they talk about like a, a Ben Johnson, for instance, has a play called The Alchemist. It's a very fun comedy, uh, but it's entirely about him uh, running out. Like it's all about the the booming uh, uh, grandeur that you can summon for people and like trick them, right? It's, right. it's all about this sort of like false wonder working and how it's all kind of like about uh, theater and pretension. Uh, and this also lines up with uh, uh, the ways that 
uh, religious anxieties were thought about, particularly in uh, post-Reformation England, where uh, not only was witchcraft witchcraft, and that could just be like smoke and mirrors. I mean, you know, opinions differed. Uh, that's the thing to to keep in mind. But there were people who believed in witches and summoning demons. And then there were people who believed uh, that it was all just hokum and it was uh, con artistry. Uh, the idea that uh, magic is either real or con artistry also transports into the realms of religion because this is also the ways that uh, competing religions end up talking about each other, particularly the way that mm. like Protestant England talks about Catholicism, uh, that it's all... Uh, just uh, uh, pretensions of sorcery, which is fake, just like the theater, because we all know it's not real. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, by the end of the sequence, Severian is kind of like running up on, right? and he, he runs ashore on this because he starts out thinking they're just con artists and they may have convinced themselves that they're doing something real, but they have fallen into their own illusions, except when he gets pulled into the magic duel with, um, oh gosh, what's his, what's his name? The guy who Dekuman. gets- Yes. Uh, when he gets pulled in, they're like uh, in in their like dueling lodge or whatever, doing their uh, preparations. And he actually realizes that uh, whatever chanting or like muttering to himself that that guy is doing, it's having a real effect on Severian. So this thing that he thought was totally empty and hollow and pure performance actually does at the core of it have something real. Uh, right. And that is fascinating. Right. Well, and then he ends up building a whole sort of theological cosmology of light and darkness around this, right? Mm -hmm. That like, um, I mean, first, first he's he's like, okay, heads up, little Severian, I got a plan. I got the fucking claw of the conciliator here. Do you know about the the conciliator? He's the guy who is going to make peace between God and and people. Mm -hmm. uh, and people are confused because he had this gem called the claw, and people think it's claws. You know how they have claw. Don't worry about mm -hmm. it. Um, and uh, later, you know, he kind of you know, building on this uh, this this kind of um, light versus darkness stuff. He basically lays out this idea that there is. There are the words of the increate, which mm -hmm. is this, okay. The, mm -hmm. it, there are the things of the light and the things of the dark, and sometimes the dark things have light and sometimes the light things have dark. He accepts this. But then mm -hmm. he says, also, there's kind of another way of thinking about it, where if you think of the the knowledge of God or the voice, the words of God as as the, the words of light, those are the things that, that he said. Those are the things that the increate said. But that means there's also the things that went unsaid, the counterforce. Um, we call those dark things. Um, and, and that means that those words have to be maintained in, in what he calls quasi-existence. Mm -hmm. um, if, if the spoken word is to be distinguished, we need the unspoken word also. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, uh, what he says is what is said, what is not said can be important, but what is said is more important. Thus, my very knowledge of the existence of the claw was almost sufficient to counter Dekuman's spell. So it's like, yes, the unspoken dark words are powerful and they do exist, but they are not as powerful as the spoken words, which if you know those will overcome it. And that seems to be the way that Wolf or that Severian is setting up our the mythology at the bottom of magic in this world, right? And mm -hmm. also maybe the ethics of it. I, you know, this again feels sort of in line with with Christian existentialism to me in some ways. Yeah. You know, oh, and uh, actually, as you were talking, the big thing for like Christian history that I forgot to talk about uh, that also fits in with this. 
the way that uh, basically any spurious uh, religious belief might be ascribed to just like magic and therefore associated with fakery uh, is not just a thing that happens in Christianity along the lines of the Reformation, right? This is also the way that uh, Christianity approached pagan religion. Right. Uh, but with also an additional kind of uh, uh, weight to it, which is, um, I mean, you know, Augustine says this, uh, that uh, the shows of Roman religion were uh, given, you know, it, nominally in reverence to the Roman gods, uh, but the Roman gods are all demons. So, right. uh, and those were things that, like, God created those demons too, right? Demons, like, you know, evil is God's left hand in a way, right? Uh, that uh, now that sort of ruin has been visited upon Rome, uh, because of the uh, the worship of these sort of false gods, we can see how true Christianity is uh, as as the way forward in in uh, you know whatever in relief to that in some yes way. exactly yeah. right well and that's also the other thing that's happening here and and again is this Severian is this wolf is there is a kind of ideological or ethical claim being made here around the natural being moral, right? That like the yeah. world of God, the world of the increate, the words thereof are the good thing. And there's a real, uh, like there's a real like f masterful martial arts judo flip maneuver happening here where he goes, and after all, um, the dark, the people who, who uh, like dark things, they covet that knowledge and refuse to pass it on. They either pass it on incorrectly <laughs> or they pass it on right. in a, in, you know, with missing in code, right? But they the only, they just love, take on one apprentice. Right. Uh, yeah, there's and, the rule two happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, but, or, or you're, you're passing on good things. People who love knowledge, like real good knowledge, like the Pellerines, they make sure that gets passed on from generation to generation. It's natural that Christianity was is the truth and was passed on from generation to generation and became a world-shaping dominant religion um, mm -hmm. because it's light and light things, you know, let themselves be passed on from generation. And it's like a real quick uh, you know, any of the ambiguity that existed before around that stuff is erased in this moment for me where he says, you know, again, earlier he's like, sometimes light stuff uses darkness and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. This is universally true for him. The good stuff lets itself be passed on. And the people who take up good things are desire to pass them on. Unlike the people who take up bad things, which <laughs> covet and protect and hide and destroy, you know? Yeah. This all leads up to a place where he's got to do mind magic up against a dude yes. who he doesn't believe can do magic. And let me tell you, the dude can do magic. The dude is doing mm -hmm. magic. The dude is is begins melting his brain <laughs> from 40 yards, right? He just starts nuking him. And he's like, uh-oh, uh, uh, maybe I should walk over there. And he like stands up and like, you know, cartoon style, a bunch of like weapons come in at the side. He's like, yes. oh, cool. All right, so maybe I can't. Uh, hmm, maybe I should use my magic powers. He calls uh, and he's like, oh, can we talk real quick? Can we have a yeah. conversation? <laughs> <laughs> and the yeah, yeah, Deku Man is over on the other side, like clearly trying to ignore him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's focusing on his spell. He gets put in the room and they're like, look, you and your kid can leave. Give your sword back if you defeat our guy with magic. And mm -hmm. if you can't, you're dead, bro. It's our stuff. Like, it feels fair. And Severian, just because he does not believe 
gets goofed on because the dude can do magic. And that's mm-hmm. when he has all these different thoughts. I do love that thing about the claw, though, that the... Um, oh, it's so funny. That the sorcerers... He says, uh-oh, these sorcerers are like longtime enemies of the um, conciliator. The conciliator brought peace, critically, brought peace between humans and the increate, mm-hmm. implying that like the the perhaps the natural state between the increate and humans is war, which uh-huh. is interesting to begin with. Wait, did he but, bring it or did he fail to bring it? Didn't he set out to bring it and then it doesn't he actually... He set out to bring it. He set out to, yeah, it's yeah. unclear if that has been... Complete, but that's the goal of the that's the conciliation of the conciliator. Yes, you're right. You're right. Um, but so, so like all this is happening, and it's like the people who don't like him, they know he has a claw. So, what is the best way to fight a claw? Your own claw. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. We're gonna wear claws all the time, like Wolverine. (laughs) Yeah, like that. That is the that's the line of logic Severian gives. I don't know if that's true or not. That's very funny. Really funny moment where he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna get the claw out because that's gonna be my little. That's how I'll beat them." And as soon as he touches it, he like gets a little reprieve from Dekuman's like mind spell. Well, as soon as he touches it, he goes, "Oh, I'm good." Well, and he goes, "And he goes, oh, I." Right. Why did I think I had to take it out of the saber tash for it to work or out of the little, <laughs> yes. the little pouch? It's magic. And, uh, I learned that <laughs> night that it was not so, and I laughed. And I just love Severian in the magic duel being like, you dummy, Severian. It's magic. <laughs> he turns into Tobias from Arrested Development. Exactly <laughs> Oh, Severian. Oh, Severian. Um, but, then, but, but I do like that because he's like, oh, I'm good. Like, I'm good. And then immediately after that, he starts getting lasered in the head again by magic. And he's like, wait, I'm not good. I'm not good at all. Uh oh, hold on. Uh, the, you know, the, the claw's only so good. And then straight up, the blob blows yes, up. Yes, outside someone screamed and the blob is here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, speaking of, uh, uh, you know, evil being the left hand of God, uh, Severian only gets out of this situation because uh, he has so many people who want to kill him <laughs> that they are now interfering with one another. <laughs> yeah, true. So, yeah, Heathor's pet. I love it. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, he puts that kid around his neck and Schwarzenegger's his way out of there, right? <laughs> he jumps and does a pull up and then kicks out of the roof like Adjia did. I do really quick want to want to hit the thing that the Dekumon spell is doing to him, which is another yeah. one of these moments where he starts to say, he, he actually says, it's always a temptation to say that such a feeling is indescribable, though they seldom are. I felt that I have, and then he goes, okay, I'm going to describe what it feels like to be in this terrible, you know, uh, situation. And and I guess, you know, the the spell plus the, the blob coming in and all of this, he says, he describes this as, I felt that I hung naked between two sentient suns, and I was somehow aware that these suns were the hemispheres of Dekamon's brain. I was bathed in light, but it was the glare of the furnaces consuming and somehow immobilizing. In that light, nothing seemed worthwhile, and I myself infinitely small and contemptible. Yeah, okay. Sounds this is good. how I feel when I have to, like, do math. <laughs> I, like, I genuinely think this is how... Uh, he, I, I think that there's a callback to the zoanthropes here. I think this mm, is mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. saying this is the great despair, right? This is what the mm. and this is the spell that Dekuman is hitting him with is the despairing mm-hmm. brain hate, like self hate. I am nothing in the face of the greatness of all, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the blob shows up, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, and it just starts eating people. Uh-huh. He, he, he yep. melts Dekuman, this dude. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. 
He was just doing. He was just doing what he was told. Like truly, a guy who yeah. didn't need to get killed. <laughs> yeah. He was yeah. just there melting some guy's brain. And, and really we, didn't, we, just, we, we did not say this, but he like gets pulled into this again, like he, against his will because he, yeah, just, he gets pointed at. Yeah. Yes. He just happens to be like the first guy that Severian uh, disables when he pops out and is like, I'm actually over here. And he like grabs him and he like numbs his uh, arm. I think, does he grab a Terminus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Decamon's little... holding Terminus S. Yes. Yeah. So he numbs the arm to... Right. And little Severian picks it up. Right. So then the the leader of the sorcerers is like, all right, uh, in order, like, you know, I shall uh, make a deal with you. You will have a magic duel with Dekuman. And uh, Severian is like, he seems surprised at his name being called out. Yeah, he does like a real who me, like a self yeah. point. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> and then the blob eats him because he's he's doing his best. He's trying to be a good sorcerer here in his cult in the middle of the jungle. But nope, the blob eats him. What type of ooze is this in D&D? Is this a black pudding? Is this a... What type of D&D... So, sorry, I want the gamer.com nine mm-hmm. most powerful oozes ranked. Yeah, great. Thanks to the gamer. This is, a, this is not a gelatinous cube. This is not an ochre no. jelly. This nah. could be a slithering tracker. Mm, yeah, sure. It's right. tracking. Yeah. All right, yeah. I mean, it's the thing that was in the antechamber of the House Absolute. Yes. Severian is pretty yes. sure. That's actually yeah. a really great, like, little textual moment, right? Like, so Heather has sent after them uh, the nochals, something in the antechamber, but we didn't see what. Uh, and then the salamander. And mm-hmm. then, uh, so we got like the three things, but the second thing was slightly obscured. And so now here, after we have like had the revelation of Heathor, we go back to thing number two and learn what it really is. I just love that construction. That's so it's good. great. It's so fun. Uh, and he's like, I can't fight this thing with my sword. <laughs> I got to get out of here. Yep. I, he cuts it once and it heals itself. Come on, little Severian. We got to run. And they run south. Uh, returning back <laughs> towards the direction they came from, um, uh, have some bad dreams, mm-hmm. um, and then eventually turn back north and and cross back through here. And on the way back, the the guy that he runs to is like, Great Magus, what have you done with the Creeping Dark? Which is a great name for this <laughs> yes. thing. I, like, oh, I sent it back to the pit. Uh, it's gone now. Don't worry about it. And he's like, Little Sparon, we got to get out of here. That little black, <laughs> that black, the Creeping Dark could be back any second now. I had nothing to do with that little Severian. That was we not me, go. little Severian. <laughs> Which, by the um, way, does this whole thing does feel like um, a little bit of a uh, always sunny in Philadelphia thing? The idea of little Severian, the idea that one of those weirdos would like get a little kid for an episode. Yes. Oh, yeah, the fact that there's not been like a little Charlie at some exactly. point you know, that they like command around is is astonishing. I want to talk about this dream that you just talked yeah, about. Yeah, please yeah. talk to me about this dream. I don't have an interpretation of it. I just, I think it's important. Like in, in the audio context, we have a bunch of listeners who don't read, yes. uh, which is perfectly fine. But they, I think this is important because I want to definitely reference it at some point in the future. It's on 122 for me. I was in a maze like and yet unlike the dark underground maze of the magicians. The corridors were wider here and sometimes seemed galleries as mighty as those of the house absolute. Some indeed were lined with pure glasses in which I saw myself with ragged cloak and haggard face and Thecla half transparent in a lovely trailing gown close beside me. Planets whistled down long oblique curving tracks that they could that only they could see. Blue Earth carried the green moon like an infant, but did not touch her. Red Verthandi became Dekuman, his skin eaten away, turning in his own blood. 
I fled and fell, jerking all my limbs. I saw true stars in the sun-drenched sky for a moment, but sleep drew me as irresistibly as gravity. Beside a wall of glass, I walked, and through it I saw the boy running and frightened in the old patched gray shirt I had worn as an apprentice, running from the fourth level, I thought, to the atrium of time. Dorcas and Jolinta came hand in hand, smiling at each other and did not see me. Then Autochthons, uh, copper-skinned copper and bow-legged, feathered and jeweled, were dancing behind their shaman, dancing in the rain. The undine swam in air, vast as a cloud, blotting out the sun. And that's the... It's mm -hmm. got a... As a full... Um, yeah. Break before yeah. each, right? Which we've noted, and actually has mostly come up around dreams. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a thing we're thinking about. Yeah, yeah Michael it's a brought dingus. That up all that's the what that's back. called. I learned recently. It's called a what? The three stars. The three stars. Uh, I saw. I saw the live show uh, for um, Depths of Wikipedia. You know, Depth of, uh -huh. Depths yeah. of Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The woman who runs that does a live comedy show, <laughs> and uh -huh. during it, uh, she had people vote on or like guess at at uh, you know what is this thing? Is this thing called mm -hmm. this thing? And mm -hmm. one of the things was the Dinkus, which she described as those three stars when the vibe shifts in, in a book, <laughs> uh, which is right. It is, that's called a Dinkus. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting thing. In your copy, do you have a Dinkus? Oh, yeah. I have a Dinkus no before dinkus. and after this. Yeah. No Dinkus. I just have uh, line breaks. Interesting. Yep. I get the yeah. Dinkus. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let it be known, folks. <laughs> Austin Walker has the Dinkus. Austin's got the I got dinkus. the Dinkus. Yep. Um, Interesting that y'all that you don't have it because it is it is very like because it is it comes after it comes as they're running away and mm -hmm. trying to get some some sleep and it just like passes out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not knowing or caring whether the shapeless creature was on our track. Still, I lay down beside the stream and slept again. Uh, you know, very much just like I, you know what, if I, if I die, I die. Yeah. I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's really funny to me. I'm just noticing this now, but, but the idea of a path being raked smooth mm -hmm. is, uh, it, it's gotta happen 10 times in these books. Uh -huh. Yeah. On the next page, he says, I saw many footprints on the path which had been smooth, perhaps raked smooth before. <laughs> the dude is always talking about raked smooth pathways. Gene, what are you about? What do you care? Yeah. You know Gene was a real lawn guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Cameron, can I ask you something? You can, you can ask me anything. Why did you bring up the dream? Because you didn't say anything about it. <laughs> I just literally want to have it. I want audio evidence of it being in the thing so we can talk about it later. That's okay. It. I didn't know if you had anything else to say or if no, you... No, I don't. It's good. A, a thing okay. that you should think about that I've been noticing as well, maybe. maybe thank you for the provocation, Mike. <laughs> uh, but I really didn't have anything to say about it. I just do think it will come up at some point. And so uh -huh. we'll, when we say that dream that I read, you'll be able to know what that is. Right, but, right. um the, the this too look I, like this is just my bias as a reader coming out these books were written in time by a human being they were published in order some were in the can before others were completely final draft finished that's a thing that matters because beginning with sword the atrium of time is showing up a lot mm -hmm. and this kid wants to master time yeah mm -hmm. yeah uh-huh we're, yeah, we're talking about thinking. the atrium of time didn't really show up very much stuff. You know, right. or clocks and time and yeah. Right. Yeah. But right. it was cool. Yeah. Oh, it was very cool. No I, question. I, I, I could cool. very easily think Gene was like, this this time stuff, that was a cool thing. I should go back there. Mm -hmm. But but we went 
uh, two books with yes. it being mentioned, I think, one time. Yeah, the girl mm-hmm. now gets we're in mentioned, one book, I think, I think it's being mentioned twice book. or three times, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I also just like the, again, the ambiguity of this where it's easy to read this as, um, okay, well, how does this un- unfurl into a key to unlock something is, is the boy, mm-hmm. is the boy Severian running? Is he seeing the future past of the boy wearing his own patched gray shirt? Or mm-hmm. is this what dreams are? Which is like, mm-hmm. I've had a weird week, man. And all of it's getting filtered into the way my brain is compartmentalizing and, and processing all of these different feelings and thoughts. It's both of the, it could be both of those things easily. Right. Well, the, but and, like, but the structure of it is really weird too. Right. Because it's, it's visually structured in the same way that the gate is leaving. Nessus, right. right? The, it's yeah, a, it sure. is a pathway with a transparent window where you can look through and see a bunch of like, yeah, animal people fighting each other. Can whatever, I say, right? It's not just that. What is it? This is the play. This is eschatology in Genesis. Oh, yeah. oh, this yeah, is what the Contessa true. sees. She talks about yeah. walking through a hallway with glass walls and seeing yeah, uh, men right. who look like Meshia reflected, uh, for, but who look like him but are not him reflected forever and ever and ever. Uh, and then we also have Dorcas and Jolinta in this vision, walking, uh, looking at each other, smiling, you know, arm in arm or hand in hand, uh, which is a thing they would have done on stage during eschatology in Genesis during that one scene where. Uh, Jahi and Meshiane are like resting together beneath a tree, right? There, there's a there's like one scene yes. in that play where they get along. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. So, so he is flashing back in his memory to seeing the play in some ways too. Right. That's interesting. Like again, not I not pulling that out for any particular reason. Just like I think we'll we will reference it again. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Uh. Then they uh, look up at a mountain. We had this conversation earlier, but this is kind of where, like, the, wait, what is a mountain? Uh Like, Mm -hmm. where that stuff comes up. They look up. They see it. There's a dude up there. um, And, you know, like this big thing. And they can see this ring. Uh And they think, ooh. Or Severian thinks, oh, even if that thing's just gold leaf, that's a lot of gold leaf. And we're going to need money. It could be useful. Yeah, because he's like, I can't raise this kid. I got to get this kid into a guild. I gotta yeah. pay for this kid to go to school. I gotta we gotta move to where the schools <laughs> yes. are good. I gotta yep. pay for private school, whatever. Yep. Um, uh, and then just like there's a lot of backtracking and walking forward and back up and down these mountains. These mountains are huge. They don't know where water is gonna come from. They find a little stream, but it's not enough of a stream. And finally they find a little city in the mountains, or like a little mm-hmm. set of, of buildings underneath some some statues, some Gundam statues. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they called it a town. I called it a city earlier too, but I think they called it, it a town. town. So yeah, it the cursed town. ten buildings, yeah. you know, surrounded yeah. by some big old statues. Yeah, which which he compares to his citadel because the towers mm-hmm. look. Uh, oh, it, it's funny again, right? Because again, Severian doesn't have good eyes. I think. I think maybe this is what it is. As a bad eye haver, I think Severian is like me because he's like, look, look, look. It's uh, it's kind of like my my place. Um, and then little Severian's like, those towers have eyes, and he's like, oh yeah, which is again just like Dorcas pointing stuff out to Severian constantly that he just didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was either bad eyes or bad attention to detail. Um, and it is. It turns out these things that he thinks of as towers are actually statues that are gigantic. Um, uh, they had shoulders and arms, and they were the metallic figures of cataphracts, warriors armored from head to toe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of at the shoulder of this mountain statue, right? Because they, they have yes. to go out. The plan is like, okay, we'll hang out here for a minute, and then they'll go out on the hand that they could see, you know, yes. with the, the, that's making, I think, a fist, right? Um, and it's got the 
ring on it. That sounds right. I, yeah. I, I'm not exactly sure of the position. Here, no, the positionality anyway. of all this is very weird, yeah. and I just kind of hand-waved it and didn't care to situate it perfectly. But what, mm-hmm. what we do know is this is sort of the front, right? This is the this is the northern. The point is that these statues are, quote, the guardsmen of the Altark waiting in his lap to destroy those who would harm him, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe this is actually a statue. Maybe the mountain is the Altark, our Altark, or the the Altark for when the war to the Asians of the north began or something, mm-hmm. where it's yeah. like this is the boundary in a way, right? They represent their spiritual guards, as he as he describes them here. Yeah, it's those Lord of the Rings things. Right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But there are these weird buildings also. Yep. And then they go into, uh, they go into the big central one. And the only it's one like, that's open. Yeah. The only one that's open. It's like Spaceship City. In there, this is right? like Geiger-esque. Got, in my mind, yeah, they have walked yeah. into the, the alien ship from Alien. Yeah. You know? 100%. I, I, I also believe this is basically just the alien ship from Alien with a little bit of, um, uh, oh gosh, what is it called? Um, I'm blanking on the name of the ship, but from 2001, right? Because sure. it's circular and oh, right. everything is mm-hmm. on a spindle. Right? Yes. yes. And so they're walking through it on its side. But if you remember 2001 where he walks the perimeter, yeah. you know, that's that that scene. Yes. I think that this is meant to be evocative of that. So like, that makes sense. Because you can see the sight lines all the way through it, right? It's kind of uh, cut through like a, like a bicycle wheel. And so... Uh, that it, it I but I exactly have the exact I have the same read, which is it's like what if the spaceship from two thousand one, but H.R. Geiger did the interior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's creepy in here. Yeah, it is, and he <laughs> feels scared as soon as he enters into it. Well, he thinks he's going to get obliterated by a laser beam as soon as he walks through the door. Right? <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm surprised nothing happened and no one attacked us. Yeah, well, and that's part of also why this is so creepy is that everything appears to be perfectly preserved. Like yeah. he talks about the buildings are not like they're made out of metal. He he can recognize that or, you know, what he calls metal, because that's one of the things that GW says in the first appendix is that metal usually means metal, meaning there are times when metal does not mean metal. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Severian looks at all these buildings and he's hoping that there's food in them, but they're impossible to open, can't get into them. Here's the one that is open. Uh, nothing is there except for these inscrutable like crevices is what he keeps talking about. There are like crevices uh, along these spokes. And then in the center, a couch with a uh, shriveled two headed corpse on it. And the couch is notable also because it appears to have restraints on it, too. So and like a two, one tube for feeding and one tube for extraction of waste, basically. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's messed up in here, man. He describes the like, yeah, the the, the n- niches where you could sit, though the sitter would have been cramped and would have faced some part of the device instead of his companions. Like you're up on the damn machine. They got you on the machine in there. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Not the voice machine. Two heads. Some other weird machine. Yeah. Uh-huh. And also this guy just has two heads. And uh, also a shriveled up wiener. Severin, make sure we know about the state of its of its nude wiener. I know we're all used to wieners changing sizes, but it was really (laughs) odd to me how small wieners get when they're mummified. Uh Literally, if you're not reading along, Severian does tell us that (laughs) explicitly. Looking at the two headed guy, this is what he's decided he has to remind us of. Yeah. Yeah, this but, gets punned like way later on in another 
uh, cycle of the sun, sun cycle, solar cycle book. And I will, uh, after we read the next piece, I will share it with you off air. Great. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, yeah. well, it, it turns out I don't, it doesn't, f- Severi goes over and starts hitting the dials and knobs and buttons and is trying to get the food tube to work. Mm-hmm. It's not working. Mm-hmm. And little Severian, like all children is actually very observant. And it's like, oh, dude, we're going to starve, aren't we? <laughs> and Big Severian's like, no, we might just die of thirst. <laughs> we just got, that's more important. Food isn't that big of a deal. Um, and they 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 talk a little bit about the weird guy, and then they're like, all right, we got to go somewhere else. Let's go get food. Let's go get water, and uh, uh, we should get out of here. And I guess, actually, I just now rereading this, it's kind of a bummer because Severian, little Severian is like, I think we ought to go down. And Big Severian says, so do I, but you know what? Let's go up first and we'll uh, get some water up, you know, where we were up in the crevices and then we'll sleep in the round building or whatever. And then tomorrow we can go down. Mm-hmm. And he should have just listened to the boy. He should have just gone down. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But he, he's got to get that gold. Maybe some water. And little Severian's just like, yay, gold, hooray. And then he gets We were exploded. on the wrist with the little plane of the hand. Actually, it's it's even you gotta go back even a second before that. Um, I guess so he does he does get to see the the statues of their head, the the, the heads of the statues moving. Um uh because that's like the last thing he sees. He sees that this the heads of the statues move to follow the sun. I nodded the boy and called, I see. We are on the wrist with the little plane of the hand spread before us, broader and safer even than the arm. As I strode over to it, the boy ran ahead of me. The ring was on the second finger, a finger larger than a log cut from the greatest tree. Little Severian ran out upon it, balancing himself without difficulty on the crest, and I saw him throw out his hand to touch the ring. There was a flash of light, bright and yet not blindingly so in the afternoon sunshine. Because it was tinted with violet, it seemed almost a darkness. It left him blackened and consumed. Severian, you just died, dude. Yeah, and like the description, it's like, you know, uh, uh, when an insect dies and the uh, legs like pinch to the center of the body, uh, it's it's awful. And then he runs out. He runs out like he's like, oh, my God, like I'm going to bring him back to life. He's going to use the claw to resurrect him. And then he's like, and then I'm going to I'm going to bring him back to life. And then I'm going to like put him somewhere safe. And then I am going to die because I cannot. (laughs) Right. I will kill myself because I did like. I'm going to resurrect him and then kill myself because I could not save him this one time. He uses the claw, tries to resurrect little Severian, and the uh, little corpse just turns into ash. Now, this is this is laugh out loud funny. <laughs> <laughs> like, it is deeply tragic and sad. Oh, it's so but, fucked up. But also the notion of him being like, all right, fine, I'm going to use the claw. And then he touches this corpse, you know, this child corpse with the claw, and then it Poofs into nothing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like in like in a fucking Marvel movie. <laughs> That's funny. That's a funny thing to happen. <laughs> I don't feel so good, Big Severian. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like that. Poof. But as you said, right? We, uh, like something happens here, right? Like it's not nothing happened and he disintegrated to ash as right. I touched him. It is. Yeah. For a moment, it seems there was a glimmering, a bright shadow or aura. Then the boy's corpse crumbled to black ash that stirred in the unquiet air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something happened. The claw, the claw returns things to t- from time, p- perhaps. I don't know. We, we will find out. I have my guesses. 
I think this is Severian. Okay. That's my, here's my supposition. I think this is Severian and he like time summoned, traveled it back somewhere. And now he's going to be, he's going to be a little boy somewhere and not know who his parents are. And someone's going to get him to, I don't know how time travel works. I don't, I don't know. Hmm. I can't get it, but it's, no, you get no, it. You get what I'm getting no way at. You get it. There's, I get exactly what you're getting, right? Like, the, but he believes, claw. this is the moment he believes he wants to conquer time. And this is that mm-hmm. the claw conquers time. And so I think it can do something different now because he's willing it to do this other thing that's not the same thing as just heal somebody. It's he's not mm-hmm. just restoring life to flesh. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to conquer time and get this kid to somewhere safe. And this kid is Severian. This is yeah, my. No, I get, I get what you're saying. I, yeah. be fi- I, the kid's Severian, I'm pretty sure, is what you mean? The little kid is Severian. Is yeah, Severian. The kid's Severian. Yo, this I is see, what I'm. The, yes. The kid is, is Severian. big Severian. Yeah. The, wh- the, the kid. No, wait. The, the kid is. Li- I think big, big Severian just yeah. sent little Severian. Uh-huh. Yeah. Back in time. Imagine a snake with and he's two heads. the kid. Yes. A snake. <laughs> he's now. He has now two the heads. Kid? And he's Severian's now the kid. Severian was always the kid. He didn't know his own mother. Oh, his mother he was, was born Cast, the kid. He was Severian born, was born the kid. as a child. Right, he dies as a child. And he, di- okay. but he doesn't die because future Severian sends him back. When I was a kid, we oh, rented okay. Terminator and yeah. Terminator yeah, yeah, yeah. Two. Actually, I'd already seen Terminator Two. My grandmother yeah. let me see Terminator Two, which my mother was furious about because uh-huh. of the violence, the content of violence in that film. I was mm-hmm. old enough to see Terminator Two. She hadn't seen it. She assumed it was much less bombastic Hollywood action movie and much more like The Terminator, a movie she had seen and knew it was a horror film. Later, mm-hmm. I would watch The Terminator. And at the end of it, when it's resolved and you understand the time loop shenanigans that are going on, yeah. Yeah. I cried all night. So upset by how time the, the paradoxes of time travel. Little eight or nine or ten year old Austin, probably more like eight or nine, sobbing for hours, not being able to untangle time paradoxes. I love and that became my favorite movie. Well, did, did you can you explain to young Austin that they're not real? No. Okay, that didn't no, no one that's told a young you Austin. Young Austin has exist. to just deal with that, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. This is a foundational myth of this young is a Austin. big Austin issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I had a little Austin, I would just pay some guild some money to deal with that. That wouldn't yeah. be for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, I think that's I'd probably uh, get them involved in a heist with me. That wouldn't go bad at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why I would do that a little bit. Uh huh. Yeah, we'd steal like a big gold ring, maybe. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be safe. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't yeah. throw a stone on it to test to see if it's okay or if you could flake <laughs> off some of the gold. Just let the little kid run up there. Yeah. Everyone's having it's exciting. Terrible, terrible dad. But uh, yeah, we don't I we don't know. And I can tell you it's not gonna get resolved as much as you might want it to be one way or the other. That's fair. Um, I don't want it to be resolved. Let me have yeah. this weird, stupid theory. It's fun. Uh, and I, I think I do love here that is actually more resolved is actually the emotional resolution from Severian, mm-hmm. which is oh, yeah. he does this terrible trick in his own brain, which he calls out as a terrible trick, where he goes, um, the kid uh, Yader, who I saved, and mm-hmm. little that's the same kid. Wait, hold on. You think he's like Darth Yader? No, no, no. What? I don't. No. Darth Yader? I'm saying you the, just um, said Yader. Yeah. Why can't that kid be Jadar? <laughs> Whatever, because it's a J, and they're in South America. 
I don't know. I think that kid's Jadar. People coming after my ass for pronouncing things all the time. I'm 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 double down it on Jadar. 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 Okay. Wise in the middle. Jader. <laughs> Jared, yeah, I'll Jader. I'll meet you halfway. Jader. <laughs> Darth Jader. Jader. We all accept it. Jader. Um. Yeah. Jader. He's like Jader and uh and little Severian. Ah, uh, you know, like they're basically the same kid. He says. He says. Um. There was no confusion of memory, but for a time, a confusion of mind in which the boy was merged in that other boy, Jader, who lived with his dying sister in in the Jakal upon the cliff of Thrax. <laughs> God damn it. It's Jakal. The one who had come to mean so much to me, I could not save. The other who meant little, I had cured. In some way, it seemed to me that they were the same boy. No doubt this was merely some protective reaction of my mind to shelter its salt from the storm of madness. But it seemed to me somehow that so long as Jader lived, the boy and his mother, the boy his mother had named Severian could not truly perish. I love it when my mind protects itself from its own its own failings. <laughs> I saved one kid. What what are two kids but one kid? Well, that's uh-huh. the thing, right? Is like he's conceptualized he's had this turn as a person. Yeah. He's made yeah. the choice that Dorcas has asked him to make and to be a different person. And he did it by saving this one kid. And now a day later or three days later or whatever, he's gotten this other kid killed. And partly because he knows in his heart of hearts that he did not go save the mom when yep. the Zoanthropes came. Mm-hmm. He goes on to mm-hmm. explain this, that, that you know, the dog had been a coward when the Alzalbo came, but died with his teeth in the defiled flesh of a Zoanthrop protecting the family, while I, a coward, had hung back, um, partly because of the resentment he felt because Casto didn't give him light when the Alzabo was there, even though he understands why she didn't bring him light. Mm-hmm. I love all this. This is all great. I knew then on the arm of that giant figure, the ambition to conquer time and ambition beside which the desire of the distant sons is only the lust of some petty feathered chieftain to subjugate some other tribe. Classic Severian. That's some real Severian shit. Uh-huh. And this is it, right? Like, okay. It feels like his turn towards goodness or towards... I'm going to be the good Severian. I'm going to I'm going to go heal that kid and I'm going to be this kid's dad. That's what honor demands was a bridge to lead us to I'm going to conquer time. Cuz I have to imagine to some degree as you keep talking about the the whatever the vault of time or whatever the name of that area. What was the name of the place in the Citadel called? Mm, atrium of time. Atrium, atrium of, time. of time. I also couldn't remember. Um it's like okay, here is where we are. The the book has realigned itself towards yeah. Because Severian has, first, I'm going to go to space, and now I'm going to conquer time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yep. time, for, basically, Apu Punchal forward, right? Right. Like, that yes. moment forward. Yes. Has been time, moving time, 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 time. Yeah. And that's it. He goes to that little room. He goes back to that little thing. He's all sad, sad times. He doesn't mm-hmm. go back go- to the room. He he gets lost, and then he just, like, oh, sort yeah, of snuggles down into an alley so to feel miserable funny. about himself. Oh, it's so oh, funny. I thought he went he back can't... into that. I thought he ended up in the thing itself, but maybe not. No, no he said... he's looking. He's by some idiotic yeah. error. I contrived to That's lose right. my way yeah. when I would yeah. try to return to the circular building. Maybe it left. 
Oh yeah, I I just got confused. I re-entered the silent cluster of buildings that stood in the figure's lap. Yeah, uh, that yeah. to me, I just uh, transposed something there. And this and the thing that you just said is where he also talks about the miracle thing, right? Mm-hmm. If I'd seen one miracle failure fail, I'd witnessed another. And even a seemingly purposeless miracle, like the Du Bois' death, is a miracle. The thing that happened yeah, mm-hmm. there, and then the, maybe the the reduction to further ash via the the claw. Uh, even a seemingly purposeless miracle is an inexhaustible source of hope because it proves to us that since we do not understand everything, our defeats so much more numerous than our few and empty victories. I already read this, right? And maybe equally spacious, right? So like that's that's the that is how he is is seeing the world now, right? That that we cannot look at our defeats um, uh, as being you know the truth of the world. The truth of the world is is potentially still optimistic and hopeful and divine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. because a miracle could come that fixes everything. Instead, I found a sheltered spot yes. well away from the nearest metal guardsman where I rubbed my aching legs and wrapped myself against the cold as well as I could. Although I must have fallen asleep almost at once, I was soon awakened by the sound of soft footsteps. Do you know how hard it was not to turn the page? Do yes, you know? I do. I, I, I stopped it here on purpose because I knew how hard it would be. Yeah. And there's nothing better than mm-hmm. ending your episode on a cliffhanger. It makes people want to listen. It does. Do you want to, you know what? Let's do it live right now. Don't read anything. Just read the chapter title. Should I read out loud? Read it out loud. Typhon and Piaton. I don't know who Piaton is. Ooh. Who's Piaton? I guess I'll learn. Ooh. I'll find out. Yeah, I'm not but you do know who Typhon is? Well, not in this book. Oh, right? okay. isn't, That's like a name that people yeah. have. Okay. Typhon yeah. is a mythological person, yeah. isn't it? One of yeah, the yeah, yeah. one of the the what do you call it? Like pre gods, one of the titans or whatever. Or a, yep, not mm-hmm. a titan. Not mm-hmm. is it a titan or is it a one of the other ones? I think Typhon is a titan. Okay. Come on down and let's play the new game. Is it a titan? <laughs> Gorbachev. Tell us, Austin, is it a titan? Yeah, Gorbachev's a titan. <laughs> That's right. But uh, oh, yeah, anyway, we're, we're, we're about to meet Typhon and Python. Uh, maybe the best character in the whole goddamn thing. Ooh, okay. He, he's right. Am I am I wrong, Michael? He is. I, he is something. I mean, uh, you know, there is. So the El Zabo is top mm-hmm. tier number one scene That's in, number in one. Number you know, one. Uh, top 10 scenes written in English. Uh, I like really, me. truly, like, if you can just go find just those <laughs> chapters, if you haven't read along with us, I really, really do think reading The Widow's House, He is Ahead of You, The El Zabo, is uh, is the sort of the lictor also yeah and the sort of the lictor yeah, yeah that's right. that run you know when people talk about like uh, a, a musical artist has an album out and there's like the five songs in the middle of the album and it's just like that run has never mm-hmm. been touched i mm-hmm. really think widow's house he's ahead of you alzabo sort of the lictor is like that it's that good yes anyway i agree and also i think that what we are about to embark upon is if not as good, like at least very, very close. I'm excited. Like, you know, well, I've I've been playing trickery, okay, because I've said repeatedly that Claw the Concil- the Jonas section that we read from Claw, you know uh-huh. that that really like that's my number two, and this section that we just read is my number one. But here's the deal: I didn't say I I didn't have 
two things tied for number one. <laughs> <laughs> because the next section is also my number one. Yeah, I, 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 I conflate these in my mind whenever I think about this book. <laughs> incredible well, well i mean they also can happen lead. at the same time too yeah they lead into each other apparently yeah. so i'm excited but i have uh i i very purposely split us there also too to get through the entirety of the typhon section would have added quite a bit of reading to this middle thing and would have made the the final episode pretty small i mean we're already on three hours here you know what i mean i think yeah. we had a lot yeah. here to dig into so yeah and that was my thought and my belief and i, I was right so the next one we'll have uh, Typhon, and then all the way through, we, we've we talked already about, this is not a shocker, but this is going to, uh, sort of a lictor will basically take us to the war in the north. And so um, we'll find out next time, does Severian find the Pelerines, right? That's who he's looking for. Does he find the Pelerines? Um, how does he get off this mountain? How does he make his way even further north with all those other Soldiers, and that'll be the end of Sword, and then we will have three episodes for Citadel, and then we'll have one episode on Earth. So um, we'll basically be carrying this through the end of the year, um, through through December. We'll be here, and we've had some conversations about the next uh, books that we're doing, and we'll have more plans about that soon. I imagine we'll probably take a little bit of a break between season one, season two of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but that makes know, sense. Yeah, but not not a huge amount. Cool. Anything we want to say? Before, that we've left on the table. Uh, I uh, just want to be very clear that I think that the like God works in mysterious ways, miracles, miracles, good and bad uh, sucks. And it feels like I kind of have Wolf's number to some degree at this point. You do. Um, and it's, it's, I can feel the dissatisfaction approaching. I mean, it sounds like satisfaction approaches first. Um, and dissatisfaction soon follow that, you know, um, mm, as the, uh, as the fish says to the fisherman, there we go. uh, satisfaction, uh, is often followed by dissatisfaction <laughs> because uh, he's eaten no, the would, worm no, and like, then the worm turns into a hook. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that's the way that you got to go even further, but you okay, gotta be more, like, as the more. fish says to the fisherman, uh, satisfaction's always followed by the catfish. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> sure. All right. Mm-hmm. I'll Great. stomp on frogs and shove a crowbar up my nose. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway. He so, should have eaten uh, Jonas so that we could still have <laughs> Jonas in the book. Samaria <laughs> <laughs> should go around with Liddell Zabo and just pick cool people up and become cool people. Like, and that would really set up the parallel with Hathor, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, the kind of uh, like the good Pokemon master, yeah. you know, the kind of uh, what's Professor Oak's grandkid? Gary. Gary. Yeah. The kind of good Gary to the evil Ash. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> as we all know, the, the moral universe of Pokemon works just what like if that. Ash had to eat an Alzabo meal of Gary and then Gary was just in his head shit talking to him all the time. <laughs> Just bullying him because yeah. they're both eleven years old or whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pikachu is looking pretty weak. <laughs> <laughs> it's simply that this is one of my favorite things in fiction is when you got another voice in there, like giving you giving you shit. Um, a memory called Empire, the Arcady mm-hmm. Martine book from a few years ago, is kind of yeah based around this idea. It's great. My favorite thing about that cyberpunk game from a couple years ago is that it's that is that Johnny is in there just being rude to you all the time. Love yeah. it. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun when there's another guy in there. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, when there's another guy and they're positive, not when there's another guy and they're negative. That, right. That, uh-huh. I can also imagine that not being. It could be bad. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But um, yeah. So we'll we'll be back and we'll be finishing sort of the lictor there. Do we know what our next bonus episode is? I don't think we've decided. No, we no, do. It's labyrinths. It's, I, I'm sorry. I keep saying <laughs> this, this is the second time. Uh-huh. It's the second time. Oh and no! I think it might be the third time. I think we've recorded just King things since then. I forgot that we'd done a. We talked about it there. We're doing Borges' Labyrinths that will come out soon, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we hope you enjoy that. I think the way that that's going to work is we're each going to we're going to read the whole book, and then we're each going to pick our like top five things to talk about, and we'll talk about those things. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com/slash/RangeTouch is where you go to support the show. You get access to bonus episodes like Labyrinths or the In Call or the other things that we're doing. Hopefully, the AMPGP makes a deal with the actors and the writers soon so that we can get back to watching movies, which I like to do. And uh, it's like my expertise. And so, you know, um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, fun to do and talk yeah. about the thing you know something about. This is why over um, on, on the Star Wars, on a more civilized age, the Star Wars podcast I do, we uh, we just started talking about my expertise, which is video games instead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though we were well, about I to talk think... about, can I promo a thing over there? Yeah, sure. We um, we pulled uh, some favor. We called in some favors, and uh, the old uh, More Civilized Age crew, which is me, Rob Zachney, Natalie mm-hmm. Watson, and Ali Akampora, went mm-hmm. down to the old Galactic Star Cruiser weeks before its destruction, uh, which <laughs> was the overpriced mm-hmm. Star Wars hotel at Disney World. And we did that. We did their, like, pseudo-LARP, pseudo. It's not really a mega game, but you can draw mm-hmm. some lines there. Yeah, yeah in the Star universe Wars. of that. Yeah, and we were going to record a podcast about that. Uh, tomorrow, actually, and so that'll go up. You got to do something for us right now, Austin. Yeah, uh huh. You got to get. You got to put something on shelf by genre right now that you will not say, oh, like a little on secret. that show. A little secret. Yeah, it doesn't have to be big. It can be small, right? But like, what's oh, a thing that happened hard. that you think was interesting, but you won't talk about? That I won't talk about. That you that won't talk about on the other show. Um. Okay. There was a moment where I was. I will not talk about this on the other show where I was recording. Okay. A FaceTime message, or not a FaceTime message, but like a video call message mm-hmm. to my partner at mm-hmm. like 2 a.m. in the little mm-hmm. cabin. And the little cabin has a space like window out into space, like a fake window. It's like a curved screen behind a window. And so it like sort of looks like you're looking out in, into space. And it mm-hmm. really looks like it when it's at night and you've turned off the rest of the lights in the in the place. Um, and in the middle of me recording this like update about my day. Uh, we jumped into hyperspace. <laughs> and so my entire little room turned bright blue with hyperspace jump lines, and it scared me. And on the video, I go, ah! And it's, it's a very good moment. No, I won't bring that up on the other podcast. So That's Congra- funny. That's yeah, weird. Good. That's weird. That, does it happen on a schedule or just yeah, happens Yeah, 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 because you're like going oh, okay. from place to place. You're going oh, yeah, on it. a cruise in space. Uh-huh. And so, yeah. Have no, those- I got that part. But I, I understand. But I didn't. I wasn't the name. aware of the incoming. Uh-huh. It wasn't like countdown to hyperspace. It's like jump. in the middle of the night. Yeah. Well, you were supposed to close those windows if you're asleep, theoretically. You know. Well, who's gonna look? Oh at my god! So it's like simulationist in this regard. <laughs> it that really like, is. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need uh-huh. to simulate having privacy in the yeah, fucking you, fake a space basement. Well, and here's the thing that's messed up, and I will actually say this part of on AMCA: the that's window weird. out to space is really cool, but it's surrounded with bright lights, and there's no mm. option to just turn off the lights and let yourself mm. look out into the space field. Um, and 
that's a problem because it would that's how it would look coolest. And I would sleep like that. I would have slept with them open, but the only way to get the room dark enough to sleep is to turn it off, which turns off the lights, which is annoying. Got it. So it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is annoying. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fake privacy because it's a big windowless concrete room. <laughs> you know, it is right, right. Nothing. You're not actually. No spaceship is going to drive up and go. Hey, hey, I see sickos.jpg, but in space. <laughs> Looking in the window at you as you sleep, you know. What, uh, what are they going to turn it into? They're going to destroy it. This is they're the not current- going to make it like a bear jamboree. <laughs> they're or they're going like to make that. an example of it. They, they <laughs> might. So the current theory on the fan Reddit an example the hubris that they. So it is. It is being like written off as a tax expense. It's like one of those like a business oh. failure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you do that, uh, this is secondhand. You know, analysis. This is not mm-hmm. me. I don't know from anything. But apparently when you do that, you're not allowed to then reuse that material. You can't say, oh, "Oh, this is, I'm writing this off. This was a mistake. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm going to put it all back in the main, uh, uh, you know, play. You can't say, oh, we bought all these t-shirts to sell and they were a mistake. Yeah. Uh, The wrong Super Bowl winner on them, writing them off and then also put them out on the rack to sell. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could just house them. You could just put them in a warehouse, but someone on the Reddit for this says, Disney historically to ensure that they comply with that and remove the risk, just destroy stuff that they do this to. So they're just going to mm. sledgehammer it all. So people is, are going to steal the shit out of everything. Yes, hundred percent. You can already go try to buy like drink menus for twelve hundred dollars on cool. eBay. It's a nightmare. Cool. It's a nightmare. More civilized age. We'll talk more about that on more civilized age and on Patreon.com/slash/civilized, where we will we've recorded our live reactions to this in nightly. Uh, diaries from when we were there uh, and are both um, exhausted and a little drunk because the only thing you can do on there is when you don't have like a scheduled activity is hang out in the bar. It's one of the big problems with it as it's designed. So uh, yeah, that's what we were doing over on AMCA. So look forward to that. Or that's probably all, some of that's out by the time this, when is this out? When's this episode out? Don't worry about uh, it. It's probably out. Don't worry. It's probably out. And if it isn't, it will be soon. So that's my plug. Uh, great. Patreon.com slash range touch to pay for this thing. Yeah. And do uh, that, by the way. Yeah, do that thing. <laughs> we'll we'll go to the Andes and electrocute me. <laughs> just to uh go along with uh, the immersive experience you had, Austin. I would electrocute Michael for money. <laughs> yeah. I'll put him on the just, machine. Uh, I think he can take it. He's an adult. He'll <laughs> yeah. be fine. I'm not worried about him. Uh, uh um, yeah, that's the end of it. The uh theme song. Cinderwell wrote and performed the theme song. Sam Beck made the podcast art. Jordan Mallory edited and produced the show. I, I got to give a shout out. Last episode that came out, I had <laughs> Jordo. I wrote that email. You all saw it. <laughs> I was like, Jordo, I, I got the genre name of the string cheese incident or whatever. I got that wrong. <laughs> Can you fix that for me in post and like make it like a funny thing? And uh, Jordan did. It made <laughs> it like a very funny <laughs> fix, I thought. And so if you haven't listened to that episode, worth listening to the end of that episode just to, to hear Jordan's very fine joke. We'll be back in um, a couple weeks uh, with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is coming off and then we're on the off week, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, we'll be back soon <laughs> with uh, the last episode of uh, Sword of the Lictor. And then we'll be downhill. D- goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Amid these stacks so straight and tall with tomes lined end to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend. <laughs>